Hey folks, welcome back to another in-depth show. This time we are going all in on the BFL All-American. Uh, it was held this summer on Lake Hartwell, um, and it was a super cool event. Emil Wagner got the win, and he honestly kind of dominated the year. He had more top 10s in MLF competition than anyone else. Um, crushed it across the board. Won, you know, the All-American, which is one of the longest-running and biggest championships in bass fishing. Uh, certainly on the grassroots side, it's the uh, cream of the crop. Um, and the tournament itself was uh, really cool. You know, if you like herring stuff, if you like uh, the Carolinas, it was a neat event. Uh, the TV show just recently came out. You can check that out. You can find a variety of places. And... Uh, we're going to go ahead and learn a lot more about it here uh, shortly. I didn't talk to everyone. There were definitely some more folks who I could have had on the line. Uh, Buddy Benson did really well. He's super young. He had a. He, I think he would be very interesting to catch up with. Uh, Tyler Trent did really well. He has dominated Kerr, uh, and he could be a cool guy to catch up with. I would encourage you to read top 10 baits, top 10 patterns, that sort of stuff, because Brian LeClaire caught them in maybe the most interesting way of anyone. He was like throwing a finesse jig on bridges, uh, which is not at all normal there, but obviously was very successful. He made the top 10. Uh, and then, you know, there were plenty of other guys who finished well down the field who I think could have an interesting perspective on it. Um, that said, all the guys I did talk to seemed super cool, super dialed. It was a fun time. Uh, and I learned some good stuff. Um, the one thing I do want to note, and this is why I put his interview at the back half of the show, is that the audio quality for Anthony Johnson is really not as good as I want it to be. Um, it's not bad. I think it's listenable. Uh, but if you get there and... You can't take it. Just know that there uh, isn't anything after it, so to speak. You know, you don't have to fast forward and whatnot. You can just be like, "Well, I learned a lot, and I'm done learning now." Uh, that said, Anthony was great to have on, and I really thank him for coming on. And I'm sorry the audio didn't work out as well as I wanted it to, uh, but I still think a lot of people might listen all the way through and enjoy it. Uh, so anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Like always, bug me if you like this, hate this, have ideas for the next tournament to dive in on, and uh, thanks for listening. Alrighty, so we're joined now by the champion, um, and you won in pretty convincing fashion, man. So I guess uh, I've said congratulations a bunch, but congratulations on the win, and uh, did you... My, my, maybe my main question here is... Did it go as expected? Because you're an expert on herring fisheries. You're an expert on this kind of stuff. Like, did the tournament work out? Maybe not winning, but did it work out how you thought it was going to? Or were these fish doing different things, weird things, compared to what you hoped for going into it? No, I appreciate it, first of all. And honestly, yeah, 
pretty much went exactly how I thought it was going to go. Like, I think I said in the interview thing, it'd take 54 to like 56 pounds to win. And I think I had 55 something. Um, I mean, caught them all on a swim bait and a fluke. And I mean, that's, I, whenever I go to a lake like that or a herring lake for that matter, anywhere from May to October, you can catch them on an underspin and a worm and a jig and like some different stuff, but I don't like doing any of that. So if I can pick up a top water, a swim bait and a fluke and never put them down, that's, I mean, that's what I like to do. And that's what I thought I was going to do going into it. So it went, honestly, it went about as expected. They actually bit a little better than I thought they would. So it, uh, it pretty much went as planned for sure. Well, I mean, that's beautiful when that can happen, right? I know. And that's honestly, I don't think I can say that for any other event like that I've, you know, won or done well. And it's, it usually doesn't go as planned. You usually end up figuring something out in the tournament. And I mean, I did, I did figure a lot out in the tournament in the sense that I did what I do pretty much every offshore tournament, which is just graph as much as humanly possible and then figure out what's good in the tournament. So I guess some of the places I didn't expect to be really good were good. And then vice versa, the, some of the stuff I felt really good about kind of ended up being trash. But I mean, other than that, though, it uh, it pretty much played out as planned. You know, if we had wind, they bit the swim bait. If it was dead calm, you had to get them on that fluke. And I had about 90% of them follow it and never eat. And you had to work your absolute butt off to get one to bite. But I didn't expect to catch 30 stripers a day. I will say that the the white bass and stripers on Hartwell go crazy in May. I mean, God, it was probably half and half, especially the second and third day. So didn't expect that. But Okay. When you say swim bait, you're talking about the magic swimmer, right? Yeah. Caught them all in a custom painted Sabeel. Okay. And then the regular super fluke. And then you're throwing a top water to some, right? Yeah, I had I was throwing a six cents catwalk a little bit, but uh, the fluke and the swim bait definitely did the most damage. Okay, um, do you have any secrets w- with the fluke? And if the answer is just yes, and I'm not saying I'm fine with that, but I talked with Jesse Wiggins this morning, and I consider like him to be pretty good at catching spotted bass. And he's yeah. like, let me tell you. Emil is doing something secret with the fluke. And so I have been tasked with the ask. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't lie to you. Yeah, but I, I just, it's not something I talk about. Yes. I watched, I watched the show <laughs> and I was really happy they only had hook set to fish catch. I'll put it that way. All right. Well, I'll watch the show go. several times over, yeah. not pick up anything. And yeah. I can appreciate a secret being in existence. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Yeah. If it was, if it was something I'd done, like, on like one lake or like somewhere one off, I wouldn't care. But yeah, there's, there's a couple little things. I definitely keep close on that. All right. Well, I, it's not for this show evidently, but maybe five, 10 years down the road, yeah, maybe yeah. when you retire, you know, you've got like 12 classic trophies. It's like a big thing about how like <laughs> the meal is the greatest fisherman of all time. Maybe we'll get the fluke juice out of you. Ah. <laughs> uh. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure in I'm sure in five or six years it'll be toast or something. I don't know. But no, there's there's a lot with it. I'll say that. It's not like one specific thing like putting like a I'm just making something up here, honestly, but like putting like a tail spinner in it or something. Like it's not like one little thing, but there's a lot of little tweaks to it with how you work it and 
what you do with it and the hook you use. And yeah, I'll say that much. Okay. So I guess the answer is really, if you can't figure out how to catch a fluke catch fish on a fluke as good as you do, that you need to spend more time with a fluke. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> um, have you like refined that? Obviously any technique that you're really good at, you refine it over the years, right? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you didn't, I'm sure. Well, I won't say that for sure, but I suspect that now you fish a fluke differently than you did a year ago, two years ago, three yeah. years ago. Um, is that something like you've always felt like you, like from the minute you picked it up or the first or second trip out, you were like, okay, I sort of have an affinity for this and you're going to lean into it. Or yeah. is it just something that's got to be part of your arsenal? And so you learned it and then happened to get good at it. Yeah, it's always been part of the arsenal, and, like, I always threw it a lot. But then I'd say I remember the biggest deal with that thing that, like, I kind of keep to myself. Like, I remember the day I figured it out, and it was a hair over two years ago, I think. And when I figured it out, I was like, I'm going to – I literally – called my tournament partner the second i figured it out and i was like we're gonna win every tournament on lanier and like it, it you know it didn't end up being like as stupid as i thought it was but it was one of those deals where i always threw it and like you know like everyone else and it always had a place in in the arsenal but uh i'd say like two two and a half years ago i started really messing with it and you know there's a lot of different brands a lot of different colors and just there's a lot you can do with it it's not like you know, a top water where you just throw it out there and walk it. There's a, there's a lot of different retrieve speeds and yeah, but I'd, I'd say I've been, I've been really throwing it a lot for the last two or three years. Do you think that is a little bit unique to like that style of bait? Like, uh, you know, a, a minnow bait, right? Or, yeah. Versus uh-huh. even a jig or a spinner bait. Or do you think that's just something that, and I'm going to say, I, I'm not a, well, herring fluke fishermen but like do you think that's something that you and i and a lot of other people who are figuring this stuff out with live scope and figuring out Demikis and figuring that stuff out like do you think that's something that is like inherent to that style of bait or in terms of how much like, you can like yeah in terms of like how much variety there is within yeah, i don't know i don't shape. think it's specific <laughs> i don't think it's specific to that at all i'd compare it to like millican with a big bait for example like okay. that's his thing and like we all watch him do it and we're like oh he's just sinking a glide down to a brush pile and twitching it over it and catching him but in his head he's got the perfect sink rate on that pile the perfect twitch the perfect speed and he knows like oh the water temp 74 this is a pile on a flat and these are probably big ones this is what i need to throw like you know what i mean like i feel like you can master every category some more than others probably have more tweaks but Mm -hmm. um yeah, I guess, I guess like, but then again, like if we sit here and say a jig's pretty cut and dry, there's well, probably it's like 7 million skirts, you know? And yeah. Like, and there's, there's, you know, the best guy, the guys who are best at throwing that would probably severely probably disagree. disagree. Yeah. But I think just the nature of me being on a herring lake, like, and it's not just a fluke. Like I'll say that, like they weren't eating a topwater in that tournament, but even topwater fishing over here in the summer, like it is not as straightforward as just throwing a top water out over a school of fish and walking it back. Like there's a bunch of stuff you can do with that too, whether it's a front runner, 
or the sound of it or the cadence if you have wind versus calm. So I'd say there's, you know, I, I honestly, I think there's tweaks to be done with a lot of baits. Okay. Especially now that kind of seems like that's the deal with how many people fish now and how tough it's getting. Like, it seems like the guys on the forefront of stuff that are winning, like they're always doing something a little bit different than everyone else. So. Yeah. I, I suspect that even back in the day, people were always doing something a little bit different. Yeah. It's just, we didn't ever find out about it. Yeah. And, and now we have a lot more ability to be like, well, even if we can't figure it out, we can at least be like, well, that guy's definitely doing something that's not normal. Right. Right. Whether it's how bait behaves or, Right. What they it's like, it's like what, I'm gonna call out Wiggins since he called me out earlier. All that sucker does is throw a shaky head. Go ask him if there's any secrets to throwing that shaky head. Like they there is well, a lot some. Of <laughs> Think about it. Him and his brother go to Smith and the entire top twenty is throwing a shaky head and they beat everyone. They've mastered that technique. They know every little intricacy to it, you know, how each worm sits on each shaky head and you know the weight of each shaky head and what bank to throw which one on like they have all that down and it's all in their head to the point where they probably couldn't even explain it to someone it's just muscle memory so but yeah just another no it's a good example of like just how refined everything can be yeah Um, so you're talking about pressure a little bit i this is going to go back to wiggins here he was saying that you had like 30 to 50 boats following you on the final day and like day two of this thing. And no, I think that might've been a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah. No, at the but... was, there was 10. I remember I counted that at one point. Okay. But Tell still me, compared to Matt. Is that a normal thing for you? Like you're just that big on Lanier. You're like, ah, 10 boats follow me. Big deal. No, no. Or <laughs> I, no, I'd never dealt with spectator boats. I'd never dealt with cameras, anything. And like, that last day, like I saw Matt and Buddy, they had like one boat and I had 10 spectators, that drone that was 10 feet from my head, the cameraman, <laughs> the photo boat. I mean, and I wasn't used to any of that. Like I, I'm trying to think because like none of the regionals, I don't think they had camera, even camera boats. No, like that. Anything. I mean, this so, is the first tournament you've had. It would have been for sure the first tournament you had a live camera in the boat, right? Or well, not live, but TV. Yeah, and then, yeah. Like a, like a, you know, even on the water photography is you would have seen yeah. it maybe a little at like a Toyota or something, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But no, that was that was a whole new thing, and I, I know I've told this story already, or at least I know I did on stage. But like he asked me, I thought it was going to be some slow going thing with the cameraman, where like we were running around so fast, I was really worried it was going to slow the pace down, mm-hmm. and like a big thing for me is just. I like feeling like I can be more efficient than everyone else doing that deal. So like I really get after it and I was like, God, this is going to slow me down bad. But he, uh, so I kind of, I managed to keep him out of the boat till like 10 o'clock. And then finally he was like, dude, I have to get in your boat. And he hopped in the boat and we caught everything with him in like two hours and he was super quick. So on that note, it wasn't that bad, but it was definitely the most stressful day of fishing I've ever had for sure. Way more so than like Table Rock because I was in seventh and I had no clue I even had a shot. But there it's like I had Matt 12 ounces behind me, fish against him every weekend. And then Buddy was, I think, three pounds. So, I mean, it was really just Matt I was worried about. But it was a god, it was stressful for sure. Yeah, especially because if I remember like you, you weren't catching them early that final day. Whereas like 
you know, you, the ideal final day, you like roll out and catch a four pound in your first stop and like it, your next stop. And you're like, oh, this is going good. It was like kind of crumbling a little, right? Yeah. And like I, I mentioned, the white bass and the stripers are early, earlier and the third day, for whatever reason, they went bonkers. And it was like I probably it was two stripers to every bass. And I was like I said, I was throwing some of those original Sabils and you can't just yank them and break them off. So you had to fight them. And it was just it sucked. <laughs> but yeah, the last the last day was it was tough. I don't think I had the first one I weighed till nine thirty, ten o'clock, something like that. And then caught most of them between there and one o'clock and had a meltdown or two that evening that I'm happy to see they didn't put in the show. <laughs> but <laughs> it was uh yeah, it was something for sure. I'm sure I'm sure Jesse's had quite a few spectators on Smith too. I I would think so. Um yeah. He also has for a while run like one of the most identifiable boats like in the country with the yeah. uh, he had Literally. a Honda for a long time. And um Honda that probably on. didn't help him either. No, that, that didn't do him any favors at all. Um, that final day, did you feel like yourself fishing differently as the day went on? Like you were rattled in the morning and then you started being better and that's why you caught him? Or was it simply that's how things shook out? Um, it was actually kind of the opposite. I was calm in the morning and then, like I said, at like 10 o'clock, I caught my first decent one and then... <sighs> I've made really good decisions still. Like a big deal was the timing in that event. Like I had a couple places and you, I got it more narrowed down each day of the event. And by the last day I knew like the seven or eight places where I had a legit shot at like a four plus pounder and you could only hit them a couple times a day or you screwed it up and you just never catch one there. So like my timing was really good. My decisions were really good. I honestly think I had the chances for a bigger bag that last day than I had the second day but definitely stress got to me i was just i don't know what it is i always tell my buddies this like if we could figure out how to fight fish the way we do in practice in a (laughs) tournament you know what i'm saying like in practice don't care you wrench on them and they all get in the boat and then in the tournament you're like thumbing your drag and doing all this stupid stuff trying to fight them perfectly and they come off and you break off and this that and the other but other than just being stressed, no, I don't. I don't think I made any bad decisions. I mean, maybe if I was somewhere I wasn't familiar with, but I kind of knew what I was getting into. Talk to me about the rotation thing because that seemed super important for like probably everybody who did well. But what was the most you would hit a given spot in a day? What was? Were there some spots where you're like, I can only hit that literally once a day, just because yeah. there were too many other people fishing it or something like that? Like, yeah. what was that like? That's a big deal. So like if if you if you have a really good place and it's like a community hole or like there's multiple people in the tournament fishing it, you you kind of have to time it right in the sense that you either have to pull up when you think nobody's fished it yet or nobody's fished it in a while, but you you can't always control that. So like you might have a rotation where you can kind of keep an eye on everything like if it's in a certain bay or a certain creek because the worst thing you can do is go into a creek or an area and you get stuck behind like matt or buddy or someone that just ran through everything Mm -hmm. because i don't care if you're throwing the perfect bait over the best school on hartwell if someone fished them within 20 30 minutes of you your odds of getting bit are almost zero like it's bad unless they're really chewing so and then even even like some of the best places i had i can think of one place specifically i probably weighed 
five or six on and I know nobody else was fishing it because I never saw another boat on it. But even that one, I, the last day I hit it three times and I hooked a big one every time. The first time I hit it, I caught one. The last day I caught one close to four and then lost a big one. The next cast. Second time I pulled up on it, I caught like a 380. And then the third time I pulled up on it, I lost that big one they put in the show. But they, I know they, um, I know if I would have hit that like six times, you don't give them enough time to set back up and really get fresh. So it's like as tempting as it is to leave for 30 minutes and come back. A lot of times you're, you're not doing yourself any favors because you're actually just making it impossible to catch one later on. Cause you're just putting even more pressure on them. But if they're really chewing, like Hartwell has a quicker, what I call reset period, which is just like how long you have to wait before you can pull up and catch another one. And like, if you go there in like June, July, when it's just peak stupid, you can pull up, catch one, leave for 30 minutes, pull right back up and catch another one. So you just kind of have to gauge that for when you're there. And like I said, I thought it was going to, it was still a really tough event in terms of how you had to catch them, but it was still better than I thought, if that makes sense. So yeah, you had to wait a little longer than expected in that one for sure. Um, and like just to finish that point, like, the, the best – what I thought was my best place in practice, my roommate, Jack Daniels, he found it too. And then there was two or three other – or like two other boats that kind of poked in there. And there was more big ones there than anywhere else I saw. I mean, there was – it was legit like two, three hundred fish deep. And there was some freaking giants on it. But a couple guys pulled up on it and sat on it for an hour. And it sucked the whole tournament. And that happens. Like, if someone pulls up there and sits on them with a worm for forever and does all this, like, you're just – you're never going to catch them there. Hmm. So you're almost – the speed at which you can fish, which that was, like, definitely a theme among the, the – especially mm. the top three guys, right? Yeah. Like, you guys, I feel like we're at a peak of athleticism that's unusual in bass fishing. Like yeah. the speed is not just to get to the next spot faster. It's actually helping you like, it, it's actually like helping you not hurt a spot too much to a degree right. or be able to fish it more than twice a day. Correct. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like when you get done with a summertime brush tournament around here, like if you do it right, in my opinion, you're like, you're wore out. It's, it's a freaking. It's you feel like you've been through a blender at the end of the day. It's it's a lot. Like you you run your boat just as much as you fish. And there are times like later in the fall, like when it gets super tough, like I'm trying to think, like there was an open last year at Hartwell in the fall, like where like a worm does come into play and that literally like if you just want to catch some, like you have to do that. But mm-hmm. if if you can get them to come up, that's what I like to do. And that, that might not be everyone's, you know, jam, but that's if I can get them to come up on something, that's what I want to do. And when you do that, you don't have to sit anywhere very long. I would, uh, I'd love to see, I would, I don't think Mercury tracks it or something, but I'd love to know exactly how many times, you know, you guys were cranking yeah. your motor every yeah. day. And like, yeah. I'd love to just see it go down the top 10. Cause maybe, you yeah. know, like yeah. maybe you literally were cranking the motor like 20 more times than second place. I don't know if that's true. It probably isn't like probably you guys were doing the exact same say, numbers. I would say Matt. Yeah, Matt was Matt and Buddy were probably right in there. But I don't know. The other guys, 
I think most of them were from out of town, so I don't know. But yeah, it's Mercury. You can you can plug it in and see how many times you cranked your motor. So if we could have done it before and after the event and divided it by three, we could have got something. But maybe maybe in the future, if you remind me, we'll, we'll do it. Yeah, next uh, next brush tournament. Like you follow for that Invitational. I don't know if it'll be the same deal necessarily. I feel like yeah, I'm excited. Probably, for yeah, yeah, but. Next one that I'm like, hey, this could line up. I'm gonna get those stats. <laughs> you remind me at Ufala. If that's a brush tournament, I run it just as quick, if not borderline faster than Lanier, because those piles are so tiny and honestly just so crappy that most of them are. <laughs> so like they take no time. So yeah, that'd be that'd be a fun one for sure. All right, we'll uh, we'll do it. We'll get those stats. Um, oh. Let's see. One question I was going to ask is, and you mentioned this a little bit, that your reset rate is faster on Hartwell. How do you determine that? And then why do you think it's faster on Hartwell than, say, Lanier or Kiwi or something? Hartwell Hartwell gets a lot of tournament pressure, but it doesn't get that much local pressure, at least compared to Lanier. Lanier gets freaking hammered in terms of, like, Wednesdays and Tuesdays and random Saturdays. Like, Every day people are out there catching them. So in the summer here, I've just noticed that I'm basing this on a Saturday, like a tournament day. It takes significantly longer for them to reset and be able to bite again. And on Hartwell, just every time I've gone, just over time fishing it a bunch, you just notice like running, you know, rerunning back to somewhere. It's like, oh, I can get bit here a little faster than I could anywhere else. Kiwi, another herring lake that doesn't get talked about very much barely gets any pressure you can go back to those things in like 20 minutes and catch one so i think most of it just has to do with how much they get fished for so like if you're somewhere that gets really pressured or if you have you know a community type place that gets hit a bunch it's it's just gonna take longer for them to for them to set back up and want to eat just because they see so many baits every day okay for the stuff you're fishing was like time of day a factor because i have some places where like you only go there yeah. first thing. It, yeah. Did you have stuff like I got to start here and then I got to fish here later? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the, a lot of the brush. So like I said it in the interview, like I think some of the best stuff I found was way shallower than most people were looking like six to 10 foot. And I only had three or four places like that. And those were the places I get bit in the morning. Okay. So I'd rotate most of those in the morning. And then there were certain like shoal markers and stuff that wasn't like structure related or brush related, just places that had fish. Those were the ones I'd hit in the morning, like where you just saw the most fish because the ones where you were pulling up and catching fish set up on a brush pile, those usually, even if there's fish on them before like nine, nine, nine thirty, ten o'clock, they're, they're just weird. They're hard to pull up and they're hard to catch. So in the morning, I'd run the places where there was just big schools of fish on them, regardless of if they were on brush or not. And then later in the day, it was I could start hitting like the brush piles and just the places they were set up on in the evening. But yeah, time time of day definitely has a factor. And day one, I kind of messed it up rotation wise. Like some of the stuff I thought would be good in the morning wasn't, and that kind of goes back to what I set up first with kind of figure all that stuff out throughout the event, but. Definitely, especially that time of year. Like, if it would have been two weeks earlier and the herring spawn would have been really kicking, 
then you would have had like a herring spawn in the morning and then the brush steal later. So then the timing would have been huge, but um, yeah. So pretty much if you have like a school of fish that aren't super related to structure or brush, then those are pretty much your better places in the morning. All right. We did a pretty long, pretty, I would say in-depth interview uh, back in the summer after you won this thing. So I'm, I'm going to point some folks to that. And I, well, honestly, I want to eat dinner soon. But yeah, the, uh, <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to ask, though, is how much are you using live scope to like gauge fish, find fish, stuff like that on your targets? And then did that vary depending on depth? Because I could imagine some of these shallower targets, yeah. one, scope sometimes doesn't work quite as good. And two, maybe you don't want to be close enough to where you can see it well. 100%. Like, and I said it in that interview we're hitting at, but the biggest thing was scope in the summer on herring lakes, like right now you can go out on Lanier and pick off single fish with a Demiki rig and a shaky head or whatever. That is not a thing in the summer. I'm not saying you can't, but like the summer you're using it to line up on your fish. And that's about it. Like you pull up there and if there's 30 of them, you go, there they are. And it just helps you make the perfect cast, but you're by no means going, I'm going to sink this shaky head. Exactly. So, and then kind of like you just hinted at, which is a good point. Those shallow places, like the best one I had, the way you had to set up on it, like there was a super sharp break behind this shallow little point, and you literally could not see them. And then you'd throw your Sabeel over them, and they'd come out of nowhere and come out of there and destroy it. So, like, you'd use it in the sense that, like, okay, that's kind of where the drop-off's at, and then launch your Sabeel over. But, I mean, it's it's still super, super helpful. Like, you use it at every stop, just not in the sense, not in the way I think most people would think. Okay. So I'm so glad you brought up like how you need to set up on it. Cause I wanted to ask when you're doing your rotation or, or anything or throughout the tournament, are you finding like certain brush piles? Maybe this is less so on the shallow spots. Cause you probably are a little bit limited by some of the ways you can set up, but like, yeah, is it better to come at them from deep water to come at them and fish uphill? Does it matter at all? Does it depend on the spot? Yeah. So I got to give away some juice, but no. So when you're coming, like a lot of people will hit them. The humps, it doesn't matter that much. Cause I mean, it's a hump. If you come at it from one way or the other, you're just throwing over the top of it. Like you'll see a lot of people pull up on the points and they pull up in front of the point and throw up on it. And if you think about it, like when the hell does a herring ever come from the top of a point and swim out the other side of it, he's either going to come, Anyway, I think he always swims over the point, in my opinion. So I pull up from the sides or like you're saying uphill. Just, I mean, it's hard to gauge. Like another thing too, is like, if it's a community hole and I see everyone hit it from the same angle, I always try to the other way. Yeah, exactly. But the biggest mistake you can make, especially on the points, I think is pulling up to the tip, growing up on the point. Cause a, I don't think it's natural and B that's what everybody does. So. The, the angles are super important for sure. Nice. Yeah. I, I kind of figured and like, you know, when you were talking about the shallow stuff, right. There's sometimes where like you kind of, you get a little bit boxed in, right. Yeah. To like where you have to, but there's also maybe some circumstances where like, if you can make the one cast that is like the cast that other yeah. people aren't making, like that can pay dividends. A hundred percent. Like, and when they like, 
when there's big schools and they're getting hit a lot, like those little differences, like, and that goes with anything, like they can make a way bigger difference than people realize. I like it. I like it. Um, honestly, I feel like we're, we're good here. Cause we have, we've done the other interview yep. and I, I'm gonna, I, I got to go really in depth, uh, on like the riser bait with Jesse and like, I, I just am, I'm glad that you got to come. I'm glad I got to ask you some stuff again and yeah. you got to sort of walk your way through it. Yeah. I got to it for a second. So that was um, good. But, uh, man, thanks for the time. And I guess before I let you go, is there any social stuff you want to plug anything like that? Uh, cause, or anything from the tournament that like I missed that you now you remember and was like a super cool part about it or anything like that. I'm all ears. Uh, not, not so much from the tournament. I think we covered most of it. Like it was obviously life changing and awesome and, I'd love to be back, but I decided to finish seventh at the regionals instead of six. So we'll have to save yeah, it. That was a bad call. Yeah, bad call there. Too <laughs> love that number. But um no, the I guess social media is just Instagram's Emil Wagner one. I'm gonna try to get on the YouTube grind this year, even though I said it flat or this year or last year now. But uh that's just Emil Wagner fishing. I just started a TikTok, so I've been uploading on there a little bit. That's Emil Wagner fishing and yeah, that's that's pretty much the three I'm using right now. So gonna try to I've been wearing a chest mount a good bit. I'm getting comfortable with it. So hopefully got some good content coming this year for all the tournaments and everything. So good deal. Well, over there and follow them if y'all want to. Uh well I will say that your uh your live scope you uh video content is must watch. Thank you. Got um, more <laughs> Maybe don't do too much more of it. I mean, oh, I'm just try. saying. I'm already, I've I've done a lot of yeah. We're gauging how much we want to put on there. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, when we get that live scoop, the live scope fluke video uh, uh, yeah. with all the secrets revealed, I mean, gosh, ten million views, no problem. Uh, that's the thing. I think it only get a couple thousand, so it's not worth it. <laughs> It'd be a couple thousand, and fifty of them would be exactly the wrong people, right? Exactly. Exactly. It wouldn't be. <laughs> All right. Well, Emil, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Uh, congrats on an incredible year. It's uh, been a pleasure getting to know you and watch you catch fish this year. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you as always. So Emil gave us the rundown on the win. And I think there were a couple of things about that interview that stuck out. Um, and I will say that interview is not the entire story, right? We have had him on other uh, shows before he we've got other written material with him and of course he tells us straight up their secret fluke juice uh, which at some point in time we're going to get out of him trust me uh, maybe <laughs> actually I'm not going to promise that um, that said uh, there were a few things that stuck out to me about this little segment one I think maybe the big thing was how he talked about sort of responding to pressure from other competitors and sort of being on the right milk run and sort of understanding how much he had to let fish rest before he could fish for them again. I think that was a huge thing, and I think it's something that's really worth, uh, it's worth diving into and understanding, like, kind of on any fishery, not even a herring fishery specifically, right? This could apply 
to smallmouth on boulders. It could apply to largemouth on brush piles in Missouri, I suspect. Um, I think that that was a very interesting little tidbit, a thing to dive into, which he obviously played masterfully. Huh. Next up here is his closest competition, Matt O'Connell. Alrighty, so our next man up here is Matt O'Connell. Uh, and Matt finished second in the tournament, was right in the hunt basically the whole way, and caught 20 pounds on day two, which I actually think was the big bag of the tournament. Uh, so yeah, you crushed it. Edged um, out a meal by a couple ounces on day two. Yeah, so uh, dude, congrats on a great event. Yeah, appreciate it. It was fun. Definitely a bit of an experience. It's always nice when you get to fish somewhere where you have some comfort for a tournament at that level. But no, it was definitely awesome. Yeah, so you're like, I guess, kind of a linear guy, right? Is what my, but realistically, if you're a linear guy, you also fish Hartwell, right? Yeah, I'm kind of different than a lot of the Lanier guys. I actually live south of Atlanta, about 90 minutes away from Lanier. Okay. So I'm kind of centrally located for all basically the Bulldog Division BFL lakes. And um, it's just become, Lanier's kind of been my home, I would say, because in the morning I can get there hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. But of course, I'm dealing with Atlanta <laughs> traffic. So if I'm going home at five o'clock, it's too two plus hours for me to get home. So I kind of, awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. It's uh, right. it's, and you're towing a boat through Atlanta traffic too. So, and I get to yeah. go straight through the middle or right around it on the, the bypass. So no matter what, I'm dealing with some fun involved with getting up there, but yeah, it's definitely become my home lake over time. Okay. And then you've uh, the, the bulldog stuff, you won AOI this year, you were second last year. Like you've been like fishing that really pretty heavily for a long time. Mm -hmm. And like, those those lakes like they fish a not just linear like you fish what is it a coney and like some other lake and like sinclair like you guys kind of pop around at some some of them are kind of grimy fishers yeah, this past year it was a little different than it has been we've always had eufaula on the schedule and they actually replaced eufaula with west point this year and the year before that i'd gotten a third at eufaula so i'd finally kind of gotten some comfort there and then they actually put west point on the schedule which really is the closest lake to me out of them all but west point has kind of become a striper catfish lake it's gotten a lot of spots they don't get big like lanier i mean it used to be a great largemouth fishery back in the day but these days it's it, it can be a little bit grimy like you said it's it's a lake where you can go catch 10 or 12 pounds or if you get that big bite you can have 17 18 20 some days but realistically in a tournament scenario you're hoping to be in that mid-teens level just to give yourself a compete chance to compete but Throughout the whole Bulldog division, I actually, last year in 20, well, two years ago now, 2022, I won an Angler of the Year at Barry's Team Trail, which is basically, I would say, probably the top team trail in all okay. of Georgia. They just go back and forth to Oconee and Sinclair. And so that was kind of my first experience early getting like a true AOY or really winning at that level because I've always bounced around. I have a habit of getting top fives a lot of places, top threes, stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, so that was really that first year where I kind of grinded it out, did all eight of their tournaments with me and my partner, Mark Denny. And we, um, we ended up winning the AOI against a bunch of guys who basically are Oconee and Sinclair locals. And that year I was also starting to get a lot better up at Lanier and it's just kind of continued rolling to where now I pretty much have comfort on that whole schedule. So it, it's nice. I pretty much show up at all those lakes with at least a de decent bit of confidence now without even really having to practice as much as I used to. 
Nice. For Oconee, Sinclair, West Point, Lanier, any of those lakes, how do they differ from Hartwell? Like, did you have to change your game plan at all for Hartwell, or was it simply you had to run the same kind of game plan you like to run, but just on a new lake? Like, what was that like? I mean, Hartwell is definitely the most similar at, uh, compared to Lanier. Um, okay. Sinclair and Oconee are both basically dock lakes, as I would describe them. They're kind of rivery, but not exactly current river. It's just they're a little more narrow. Whole lakes lined with docks. It's all largemouth. It's a little bit more of a, you know, flipping docks, running and gunning in certain places like that, more so than you're really throwing crankbaits, little things like that. It's a lot more of a shallow fishery than I would describe Hartwell and Lanier. Okay. And then um, Lanier at times to me fishes very similarly to Hartwell. And then there's times where it kind of flips around and changes. So Hartwell, from what I've figured out over time is there's times where the largemouth and the spots are all mixed up. You can catch them all doing the same things. And then there's times where you have to fish differently to catch largemouth versus catching the spots that are out living offshore, living deep, things like that. Like it's like times, it's like all the largemouth get a memo and they all go up shallow and you have to go fish docks, stuff like that. But um, we got kind of lucky in the All-American where we had kind of a delayed spring. So those fish were kind of just getting off their herring spawn bite. And so they were all still kind of grouped up in the same areas versus them scattering out and changing what they do. But me and Emil, I think, both figured out kind of the same thing compared to what a lot of guys were doing out there. Yeah, yeah, you guys definitely. I mean, uh, Buddy Benson had a really good tournament, too. But yep. real and realistically, like you three were pretty head and shoulders, and especially you two yep. were way above the rest of the field uh, when it came to having figured the lake out and like having really just having figured it all out because you had an amazing game plan uh, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was. You know, you got you get a couple lucky bites here and there, but we definitely had a little better weight than everybody consistently. Buddy and Emil were my two biggest competition going into it. I kind of knew I was worried about them the most compared to everybody else in the field, just because I know they have a lot of experience, but he put a lot of time in with putting brush piles out and stuff like that. So he had some of his own things to fish. Funny enough, he told me he kept pulling up on brush piles and he would see me there and he's like, how did Matt find that already? But, uh, that's the, that's, I mean, yeah. that's the beauty of side imaging and stuff. Like exactly, it, you can put out all the brush piles you want, but on a lake that size, it's probably pretty hard to have a secret brush pile. You could probably put have some secret brush piles on like Lake Ontario, mm -hmm. you know, Champlain. Like, give yourself a hundred miles, right? But if everyone's going to fish a twenty mile stretch of the lake, I don't know how many secrets there's going to be. Right. The one I one of the main ones that I found of his was so random, but it was so perfect. It was just this off the side of this island that you would really not even think to fish the area where the brush pile was set up but he had found this like there's just this little drop and i don't know that i actually caught any fish that mattered in the tournament off of it but i caught one or two each day when i would stop there and it was just loaded i mean i found it a week before the tournament and i was like holy i mean i pulled probably 50 fish off of it on the first cast and i'm like okay yeah that's that's a good one, but he, him and I talked about the tournament. He's like, yeah, it's full of two-pound spots, though. <laughs> so, I mean, some of them are like that, but, but uh, yeah, no, it, it definitely pays. It, but it's crazy. Like you said, nothing stays secret for long anymore with the technology. I mean, you can put some of the best brush piles ever out, and within a month, it seems like you don't have them to yourself. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, 
were you running like strictly brush or brush and cane? Did you, I, I, I talked to some guys who I think they were running like just some of those vertical, like channel mm -hmm. marker kind of poles. Like, was it just anything or were you looking for something specific? Um, I would say the fish, my better schools weren't brush related. They were just kind of in areas that it seemed like shallow drop-offs. So they'd be set up like in a random spot on the side of a shoal versus out on the tip of it. Or like the spot I caught, let's see, I caught a four and a half and a five back to back on day two. And then I caught another one of my kickers on day three off this one spot where it's just, there was a couple cane piles around it, but it was just a deep point down Lake that for whatever reason, there were just a bunch of fish scattered around it, just hanging out. They weren't really on the brush. They weren't really like set up anywhere, but you would just pull up in that area and you could pan around with live scope and kind of find them basically. So I caught, yeah, like I said, two casts, had a five and a four and a half on day two off that spot. And the second one bit right next to the trolling motor. I mean, it was. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I, every day I caught one, one good one, literally right at the trolling motor. And it was, and I told on day three, I told my co-angler, I was like, once a day I get one of those fish to finally commit because you'll see so many follow your bait up to the surface. And then I think at probably noon or one o'clock on day three, even I had it happen. Caught like a three and a half or four doing that. Your shallower fish or your non-brush fish, right? Mm -hmm. Are you specifically casting for a single fish with scope? Or is it like you'll find a group and you'll cast at the group? Or even you'll find, you'll know a, an area or a zone and you'll cast at the zone? Or it's a um, combo? Most of that tournament, there would at least be a couple fish together. I wouldn't say I was going for individuals a ton. I mean, if I was in an area that I knew was good and if I saw an individual, I would throw at it. But yeah. A lot of the times I was getting them to commit, it was because they were competing. They were getting, they had gotten pretty finicky. I mean, Hartwell gets more pressure than just about anywhere in the nation in terms of everybody knowing what to do and where they're at, things like that. Has so a ton of big tournaments. Yeah, ton of big tournaments, and a lot of guys kind of know the deal. They're all throwing topwaters, they're all throwing flukes, they're all throwing drop shot if they're not coming up. You know, it's just that kind of similar pattern that you've got to actually figure out some little nuances to separate yourself versus just, you know, fishing those same fish. Cause there were some giant schools in that all American that I don't think I would ever get a fish to hook up, but I would find that there'd be a school of 50 or 60 fish that would all be chasing your bait and you just never get, get them to hook up a single time. So that was a kind of interesting thing. And you could tell the ones that were getting more pressure than others because the ones that weren't getting as pressured, you know, as soon as you put a bait over their head, they'll come drill it versus the ones that were getting fish for a little more tend to be a lot more finicky. Yeah, I, uh, I could see that. I'm trying to pull up uh, how Chris Macy caught him in the All-American that we had at Hartwell back in November of 2020 because I remember – he like, I think it was on the last day, he like figured out a certain retrieve. He switched to a 3 8 ounce head. He was using a 2.8 Kitek. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he would get the fish to follow it off the brush pile and then kill it and let it go straight to the bottom. And then he would pop it off the bottom and they would eat it like on the pop. And yeah. that strikes me as like one of those things it's like such an oddball little way to catch mm -hmm. a fish and it was prob and just having that oddball little way figured out for you and probably a meal and some other guys who probably did really good is like super key on such a pressure fishery yeah definitely um it's 
the thing is there is you're throwing what they want to eat. You're throwing baits that look exactly what they're eating. So mm-hmm. it, like you said, the key is figuring out those little nuancy changes. But um, I'd say, so that's kind of, that's kind of familiar for me, like Lanier. Lanier, there's times where you just reel it away from them. They just come up and drill it. And there's other times where you almost like let them all see it, try and get it away from them. And then they'll, they'll go for it. So that's kind of where I think he was going with that is they get on the, they get on the bait, you follow it down and him popping it up and away from them almost generates that reaction bite. Cause they yeah, know he's they getting it real close. Yep. Yep. And then there's other times though, where it's almost like you have to get it away from them quicker. You can't just let them get right on it and follow it and meander behind it. But that always is kind of almost a day-to-day thing. Like that might've been great that day for him, but on day one, it might not have been the deal. That's one thing I've definitely noticed about those blueback fisheries is there's little things like that that'll change from day to day. I mean, the last couple of tournaments I've fished at Lanier, I've caught a couple five pound spots that have, they're not the ones that come up and bite initially. It's like, you'll have one pull off or you're, partner will have one hooked up then magically the five pounder decides to bite out of that school or like this saturday i won a tournament at lanier and um 22 pounds of spots so it's i think that's my biggest bag ever weighed in a tournament which is pretty cool that's awesome uh, all right so i hook one up i knew it was a good one i saw him on scope pulls off and i'm sitting there kind of mad about the fact that he got off and on the fall i felt another one hit it and it was a five and a quarter right and it's like what the heck but that's that's kind of almost a big thing that happens. That even happens up at uh, at Hartwell all the time with like the top water bite. Until you get them fully committing, you might not hook up on the first couple of times they're surging at it, but it, a couple of them fully committing makes more of them go for it. So that's a big thing I kind of noticed. I I didn't throw that that OG the cast OG is a great bait for those blueback lakes because it's not a it's not a um, it doesn't have that normal action that they're expecting. It does. It's not a walking bait. It's not like, it's nothing like any of them. It basically it's diving and twisting and turning. And it's so erratic that when it stops and pauses up, all of a sudden they go for it. And I went out with one of the other guys who works with cast this summer and you could leave that. He would leave that thing pause for 10 seconds at a time sometimes. And it's just that light action of it bobbing there after it had been running away from those fish, they'll come up and drill it. And that blew my mind because I'm more one where, hey, if I know they're on it, I'm going to keep it moving. I let it hop up. I'm going to move it again. He showed me, oh, no, if you use the pause in the right moments, they'll they'll, they'll, they'll go for that stuff. And I don't know why those fish act that way at these lakes, but there's such little weird things that you have to do sometimes versus how a lot of places it's just, you know, throw a swim bait over and reel it back and they either bite or they don't. But- Explain this bait to me a little bit because this is a very regional bait. Um, and. Yes. Uh, I know at least one other guy in top 10 through it. Uh, mm-hmm. I forget who off the top the guy head. who got fourth. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he told me he caught a kicker or two on it on day one, which was the best day condition wise for it. It's really a bait you want with there to be some chop on the water, wind, rain, you know, all that kind of stuff helps with you. And day one, we had clouds and wind. And, um, Basically, it's a modified saltwater bait. So if you've ever watched guys who are fishing for bluefin or they're out fishing for GTs out in Australia, a lot of them use these these stick baits, essentially. And this is a float. This is a floating version of stick baits. They have sinking stick baits as well. But Ryan Hanks, the guy who brought cast the company to America, which was originally an Australian company, he figured out he brought a I think it was 40 or 50 gram was the first one he bought. And it's a bait. It's a bait that's almost a foot long. Oh God, (laughs) massive. And he thought he just realized that the action of it made sense for the way blueback fisheries work. 
and he brought it up here. And I think his first time ever throwing it on a blueback fishery, it was a black bait. This thing is black. Makes no sense, but the action on it, he catches two five pound spots the first time he ever throws it out there. So what happened over time is he just modified it to make it a little smaller, a little smaller to make it more bass fishing versus, you know, saltwater fishing. Because my big problem with it when it was, I think the first one I got was a 40 gram. I said, I love it, but they hit it so much and don't hook up because there's six inches of space in between the hooks that they can hit versus. Is the 40 gram a three hook bait or because the 30 is two hook bait. Yeah, they're all two hook baits. Okay. So that's what's even crazier about the first time him using a 50 gram, that big a bait with only two hooks and he was still able to hook them up. But um, now they've gotten down to the 20 gram, which 20 gram is my favorite. It's going to be the one they're really pushing for next year instead of producing a bunch of 30s and 40s. And essentially it's a bait that you can, you've got multiple approaches with it. You can pull, you can basically pull it down, let it rise and catch and reel in the slack. You can do quick pulls with, with your reel essentially, or you can kind of like, you can walk it if you want. It'll, if you do rod, rod tip twitches, it will walk like a walking bait. And a lot of times a good way to get fish to bite with it is to vary. So you, you do a few poles, you get it really moving, get the fish on it. And then if they're not committing that way, you just start walking it out of nowhere. There's like little things like that about it that make it very unique. But the biggest thing that makes unique is it's topwater bait that dives. So it's getting down around those fish. And when it dives, it creates a bubble trail. And it really gets those fish up and interested and chasing because instead of it being a normal topwater bait that they're just sitting under and analyzing, they've got to stay with it and they've got to chase it. And they'll just come up and destroy it on certain days. And like I said, that day one of that All-American was perfect conditions for it. I was dialed in on a lot of the other stuff I was throwing. I threw it a little bit, but um, but it's one of those If you could do it over, you might have thrown it more. Exactly. I kind of almost hadn't figured out the power of it until the All-American, or until the Hartwell BFL that I won this fall, where I caught a kicker on it. Made the mistake of telling Emil about it. I was actually standing <laughs> tell him about it on day two of that Hartwell super tournament. He called out his whole limit on it in the last like hour or two of the day. Wow. Yeah. And he was like, okay, I owe you one. <laughs> and is this, this is the 20 or the 30 size or either one? 20. I believe 20 is the one he was using, but 20s, I say 20 is the best overall. You still get plenty of casting distance with it and everything like that. Like it's not a light bait at all. It's still a good size bait, but it, it definitely has the right combination of action and size for like the spotted bass and largemouth fisheries. And that's why I think at Hartwell, it might even be a stronger weapon because the bigger mouths on a largemouth are more likely to get that bigger bait in versus okay. the small versus the small mouths on a spotted bass, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, what tackle are you throwing this on? Are you throwing it on spinning gear? Or are you throwing it on casting gear and like, no, it's cranking rod? Exactly. like what's the setup? It's definitely casting. Uh, most guys like to throw it on a medium heavy. That's pretty, it, it's pretty much, it's heavy enough to where you don't have to use like a medium action for like most top water mm-hmm. rods are. And it, you want to get that hook buried in them. You don't want to like, you don't want them to be messing with it. You don't want them to have that opportunity to not get it in them. So I usually do it on either like a seven, three up to a seven, six medium heavy. Oh, wow. um, we actually cast makes a great braid. That's a new, it's kind of a new product, but it's a uh, okay. Teflon coated, just lightly Teflon coated to keep it a lot smoother than other braids. So you barely can tell that there's threading in it. It just feels smooth to the touch. And you can, I swear I can throw one of those at least 200 feet if it's, if I'm on the right setup. And I mean, you're slinging that thing way the heck out there. You're working it all the way back and they'll destroy it. But I'll do it braid to a, uh, to a 20 pound monoliter ish, 20 to 25 pound monoliter. Like a long leader or short? 
pretty short, a couple feet, two to three feet. Just to, I just don't want that line going right up to the bait. I'd rather have that little bit of, you know, that little separation. So they're not well, picking if up. Dart, and if it darts around as much, right, you probably are fouling up less, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's the other thing the mono helps with. You don't grab the braid like you will. So Awesome. Um, while we're talking tackle, you were throwing a fluke too, uh, which yep. I guess in pictures, it looks like Yamamoto D-Shad, I think, yeah. is the bait. Uh, and Emil was throwing that a ton too. It's obviously mm-hmm. a historically really, really good style of bait there. What was your setup for that tournament? You had a treble hook. Did you vary that? Like, I'm I'm really curious to just try to learn more about the whole fluke situation because it's something that's so dominant in that part of the country and yeah. is a bit player in every other part of the country. And it feels like maybe that shouldn't be that way. Right. Um, well, me and Emil actually talked about it at the weigh-in in terms of the treble hook versus not using the treble hook to start with. He, he doesn't like the treble hook because he thinks it affects the action. Mm-hmm. I like the treble hook because I feel like when I'm using that treble hook, I get a bonus four or five fish a day just from, and they'll barely be skin hooked on the treble hook on the lip. And I don't know if that's just how often they swipe at it and don't get it. If it's the treble hooks propensity for being able to hook them versus having that single hook in there. But um, for me, I, I like it because I'm already throwing it on a spinning rod 95% of the time. So I just run the drag a little looser so that I know I'm not going to have them come off. If, if I've got one that's barely skin hooked on that treble hook. Yep. So I'm usually doing like 12 pound, uh, 12 pound fluoro to 20 pound uh, braid basically on like a medium action spinning rod, usually about seven foot. I don't like using the super long ones, but I actually, I think in that tournament, I picked up a seven, six spinning rod, which I'd never really done it on before because I was trying really hard to get more casting distance. I wanted to stay as far away from those fish as possible. One thing I noticed in that tournament is if you pulled up on one of those loaded areas, it's almost like the fish could hear the sonar pinging. You wouldn't see the school. You wouldn't see the school on your sonar. And then out of nowhere, a wave of fish would be swimming at the boat. Oh, like they would hear it and come to you. Yes. And if you didn't get on them quick enough, you, yeah, you were limiting your opportunities basically. And it's because I think partially because those fish weren't set up on brush. They were just cruising around on these points and on these, in these areas. So I guess whatever the, the boat activity or the sonar basically essentially drew them to you. So, I mean, first morning, the first or on the third day, I had two or three spots in a row where I'd pull up and I wasn't ready for them by the time they were getting to me. Like I'd get up, grab the rod and put the trolling motor down. And it's like, oh, boom, boom, boom. I'm trying to get as many casts quickly as possible before they're all at the trolling motor. Because that's the other thing. Once you pull them to the trolling motor, they tend to just kind of shut down. They don't, they're not going to, they're not going to go set back up when they're doing that stuff. You kind of have that opportunity and then you might as well leave. At least that's what it seemed like for me. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, so uh, for your, for your treble hook on the fluke, um, which I realize we're a little bit off, we've gone in a couple circles here, but for the hook on the fluke, um, do you have like some kind of stopper on there or something yeah. like that? Yeah, or- I get, um, I use a lot of those. So I've done variations. I've done like a small piece of hard plastic that I'll cut off of like a, like a hook package or something that I'll just thread on there and it'll work for a while until it gets worn out. But I really started using, um, what's the brand? There's a couple different brands that make their, um, that make like single J hook um, trailer hooks 
that come with a harder plastic stopper or rubber stopper with them. I Hayabusa these, makes a little rubber stopper. I think that is, I think Hayabusa might've been the brand that I okay. started using. And essentially I wasn't even using their trailer hooks. I was just, <laughs> you were just buying the hooks. Cause they're the only ones that make a hard enough stoppers. stopper. Yeah. Because yeah, if yeah. you use those softer rubber ones, you're, you're, you're going through them all the time versus those harder ones where, I mean, one will last you all day essentially. But yeah, no, I definitely yeah. always use a, use something because I just don't trust that. I don't trust the, um, the hook to hold on the treble hook. Like, you know, if you, that fish turns at the wrong angle, it's just going to, it's just going to run that treble hook right off the J hook that you've got it on versus, versus I feel like having that, you know, a little stopper to help hold it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's like just slightly sketchy, just having nothing there. Yeah, I mean, you would think the you would think the barb would help hold it, and I think it would, but I just don't quite trust it all the way. For sure, uh, for sure. Um, did color matter very much on your fluke, or is that just the color that you always throw? I have um, I've got like three or four different colors that I'll kind of swap around with. I kind of have a little more confidence on the kind of darker ones when it's cloudy and stuff out just to help them pick up on it. Then I'll go for more of the clearer style colors when it's sunny out is basically how I like to look at it. And it seems to have worked for me. Okay. And then the D shed, like while we're, while we're here, is it a, are, is it specific to that bait? It's a little bit heavier, a little more salt. You like that? Was it a situational thing where like you throw a zoom fluke or a Z man fluke or something other places, but Hartwell for some reason it was a D shad. Um, it's mostly about casting distance for me. It's just a lot, it's easier to throw the D shad further. Um, like you said, it's a little heavier, so it stays down a little better, but, um, but I, I will throw a regular fluke. I'll throw the depths. One is actually a good fluke. That's got a lot of that weight as well. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's three or four options. Caffeine shads also are a little bit more like the D shads where they have a little higher, higher salt content. So they stay down a little better, but I kind of, I kind of, I just have the most confidence in the D-Shad, I would say, more often than not, I'm going to be using it. Good deal. Um, I guess maybe the last thing for the tournament is, and we might have talked about it already, but is is there anything you wish you could have done differently? Whether it was throw the cast on the first day or put in another two days of practice or anything that brings you from really good to one ounce of in front of a meal like that you have gone back and kicked yourself about or thought about i'd say putting a lot of pre-practice in i i put a bid in for that tournament i didn't put in a ton i know Emil was there at least like a week straight at one point before the, yeah i talked talking practice. with him he was like basically living at hartwell which yeah like, i mean i don't blame him you know i'm not saying like it's in the rules you can do it go do it right, right. i'm not yeah, in my head, I didn't want – I'm bad about, like – I'm bad about getting milk runs in my head and trying oh, and like not planning. Exactly. So, like, if I was there two weeks ahead of the tournament putting all this time in, I might find all these spots that were great then, but I knew things were changing a lot. It's right in that time of year where you're kind of in that transition between spawn, herring spawn, then them getting out offshore and getting on the brush and stuff like that. So rather than – getting too set in on what they were doing two weeks before the tournament. I just knew that I was just going to be as efficient as possible in the, I guess, three days of practice that we get for the tournament. Cause I have enough, I felt like I had enough time there to where like, 
Hartwell for me is a big like area lake where certain areas are better at certain times. So down lake can be good, but also down lake within side of the dam can be the dead sea at times versus like the mouth of the Tougaloo area or up in the green pond area up that way. So there's, there's little variations to how it, how it sets up. And that's kind of always been a big key for me is just keeping up with which area is fishing the best. So I basically spent my three days of practice, just like dialing that in and seeing where I was catching more largemouth versus all spots, little things like that. But really the biggest thing I would do again was probably day one. I would have varied it up a little bit. Day one was the day that there was those conditions where you could have gotten them to bite bigger baits Mm-hmm. And you really could have like busted a big bag if you were on the right schools. Me and Emil actually ran into each other at probably one o'clock on day one, maybe 1230. And he asked me what I had. And I was like, I don't know, maybe 15 pounds. And I think he only had like 12 or 13 at the time. And I don't know if and he basically was like, did you already run through all this stuff in the one area we were at? And I was like, I mean, I've hit a couple of these spots, but not any, not that much. He hit one spot packed behind me and then he did. He was out of that creek after that. So I think whatever I said to him kind of triggered something. And he then next thing I know shows up with whatever he had 17 on day one or something like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Yep. No, he, he knows how to get on them. And then, I mean, we were bouncing around each other the whole tournament, but I think if maybe throwing the swim bait, the OG, something like that a bit more versus sticking. Cause I was, I was pretty hard for me to get a fluke out of my hand in that tournament. I just had a lot of confidence on generating bites with it. And I mean, it caught me my kicker on day one. I caught, I actually hooked a, five five and a half pounder i hooked it in the eyeball with the flute <laughs> with the treble or with the regular one with the treble hey there we go and and it was it wasn't even in the eyeball it was actually in the muscle behind the eye so it came up and jumped it came up and jumped one time and i saw where it was hooked and i was like this is not a good situation it's running around on a spinning rod and um i had my co-anger ready with the net and when i got it in the net its eye was like fully bulged out because I was just pulling from behind the eye basically. So what's crazy is I get the fish unhooked. It's eye is perfectly intact. It didn't even damage the eye other than pulling it out really far. But it was like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I'd hooked it just in the eyeball, it comes off. But me getting that muscle behind the eye made it, you know, made the difference. But yeah, it was. And that was a situation where honestly thinking back on that spot, I pulled up and I saw like four or five big ones lined up on the right side of this point. And if I'd probably thrown an OG, I probably could have gotten the same result and might've gotten them hooked a little easier versus, versus how it worked with the fluke. But there was a lot of situations like that on day one, where it was like thinking back on it, it was like, man, I know Emil caught some good fish on a swim bait uh, all throughout the tournament. And that was something I really wasn't trying. And that's one of those things that sometimes there, you can get those bigger bites just out of those groups of littler fish, basically. So those are the kind of the couple things I've thought back on that I've really considered, but you know, it still was working out for me doing what I was doing. It wasn't like I was ever out of the hunt or anything. Yeah, it seems like there, there were very, very rarely one fish on a spot, mm-hmm. right? It's almost always a bunch of fish that were going to react to a bait. And maybe if you had a way to trigger a bigger one, or maybe if you just got lucky and triggered a bigger one, like that mm-hmm. was, that was a key factor versus like having a whole bunch of spots that were like, Oh, these are big fish spots. Like they're actually, they're kind of were good fish all over the place. Yeah. They were all mixed up all over the place. There were one and a half pound spots mixed in with four pound largemouth all over the place. I mean, it wasn't like you necessarily had to find these specific areas, but, um, 
but it definitely like some, like you said, getting that bigger bite out of those big groups. Cause you'd pull up and you'd catch a one and a half pound spot and you knew there were better ones all around them. But once you've caught that one fish, a lot of times out of those schools, you pull them all to the boat and they just don't act the same after that. So you kind of had to come. And I mean, it was kind of something I watched the, um, the episode on MLF TV of our yep. tournament just recently. And it really didn't click to me that Emil basically won. He had one kicker on day three that looked like it was probably a five pounder. And that really, I mean, if he catches a three pounder, I win. And it's just like one of those moments where you're like, all right, well, it really does. That that one kicker bite makes a big difference a lot of times. And I kind of struggled on day three until about lunchtime. I got in a groove after that. But morning fished really weird for me on day three. Dude, the morning was really weird for Emil too. Like yeah. he had, I think he had like, 10 pounds at like 10 o'clock or something mm-hmm. like that like mm-hmm. it seemed like for him it was like late morning and you know the afternoon where like that was when he did work and yeah. i wonder if it was lake wide like now i i guess i need to talk to some other folks in the top 10 and try to dial in it was the whole morning just trash <laughs> at lanier that day Hartwell, but or yeah, Hartwell, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> no, I know, how, I know how it is. No, um, honestly, on day three, the last hour, it felt like every single place I stopped, I was catching a fish. But it just turned into two pounder, two pounder, two pounder. Like I don't think I cold once in the last hour, but I caught whatever it was, my sixteen pounds ish on in this like noon to two o'clock period. Then since we had to run all the way back up to Seneca, you kind of had to leave a little early. Yeah, and it was like everything I stopped at on my way up there i was getting a bite every single place and it was like it was just out of nowhere everything went from you know finicky to they're just biting and i think that definitely happens at places like that and those offshore fish especially cool well uh, i tell you what i really appreciate the time i appreciate the expertise uh it was a awesome tournament for you um before i let you go what do you have for like social media that kind of stuff uh where can folks find more I am on Instagram, Matto Fishing, so Matto underscore fishing, and uh, really just Facebook. I've got, I think I'm also Matto Fishing on Facebook, but um, I've been trying to get the social media stuff going, my Instagram. I'm starting to get some better content. Just got the DJI Action 3 for Christmas, so I'm starting to record on the boat, you know, doing all that stuff you need to do, but um, but yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm, I post pretty much everything on both Facebook and Instagram, so you can follow me there. So Matt obviously had some really good herring-specific advice to share. Um, I thought it was interesting that he chose to not pre-practice quite as much as some other people. And I think it's uh, one of those deals where it sort of reveals that personal style really does matter. Um, I think pre-practice is becoming more and more popular these days with good reason. But I think that this is sort of some level of proof that you don't have to do it to succeed. Uh, he was, you know, a fish or two away from the win, basically right there, and he burned a lot less practice gas. The other thing we really dove into in this interview was the cast OG, which is a very cool bait. It's uh, kind of the first of multiple bait deep dives that we're going to get into on this show. And it was just cool to learn a little bit more about it, uh, kind of understand sort of the theory behind the bait more, uh, what it does, how to apply it, all that stuff. Uh, And obviously, I ordered some on Tackle Warehouse basically right after the interview. Uh, 
Uh, so anyway, our next man up is Jesse Wiggins, who is a spotted bass wizard. And I just could not wait to talk to him about this event. And really, it lived up to the billing. All right, so our first victim here is Jesse Wiggins. Uh, Jesse is a Bass Pro Tour pro um, who just was really smart and was like, you know what, I want to fish BFLs too. And you made the All-American and then finished fifth at Hartwell. It's a big spotted bass lake. I feel like you must have gone in there with a pretty high degree of confidence, right? Yeah, I, it you know, it, it sets up a lot, a lot like my home lake, Smith Lake. You know, it, you know, spotted bass, a few largemouth stand, blueback herring. But I mean, let's be honest. Like the the Carolinas have legit blueback lakes. Smith Lake is not as legit as everyone thinks on bluebacks. Like you can win it doing different stuff here. They definitely, you know, the big ones definitely follow them around. But it's not the critical thing every single tournament like it is on the Carolinas. So I don't have just a ton of experience with just straight blueback stuff. But I've been there before for the classic. And like in March, so I knew how it set up. I knew, you know, the, the how they set on brush piles and all that stuff. So going into it, I was I was definitely confident. But I knew at the end of the day, you know, you was gonna be competing against locals that that have that juice that juice stuff that you know ain't getting fished by everybody. But I was definitely you know looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, because we saw a lot of the the end result was a, a lot of the guys in the top were either local or sort of semi local. Yep. Or they were guys who put in, like, a ridiculous amount of time. Anthony Johnson, I think he came over and idled for, like, a week, right? Like, did you get to pre-practice, or did you pretty much just have to show up? No, I just showed up. And I just – I kind of knew that, like, I was going to be fishing to win it anyway. So, I was mm-hmm. I was just in practice. Like, I was – my plan was just to try to fish to win. I didn't know – after my practice, I kind of knew that I didn't wouldn't own enough big ones – places I were fishing were getting fished by multiple people I just didn't have enough secret stuff you know looking back I probably should have went and I don't and found a little a few more secret places but you just never know how that pre-practice stuff works sometimes it works out sometimes it doesn't but I didn't having my other schedule the Bass Pro Tour and all that I just I didn't I didn't take the time to go up there and I already had several piles mark from the classic a few years ago and there were still a few you know places that you know it was still pretty decent and i knew the area of the lake i wanted to fish in so like it wasn't i didn't go to it, it just completely blind but i didn't go pre-practice yeah uh dial me in a little more on like you say so at smith you you know sometimes blueback are a thing but they're not always the main thing whereas carolina in the carolinas they're always the main thing talk yeah. to me a little bit more about that difference like yeah so Smith, How does... yeah, I don't think we have as many bluebacks. Like, if you see blueback, like in the fall, yes, you see some. Like I've seen them, you know, this fall. I've seen some the last few falls. You know, um, you know, come up to the surface. You see them jump out of the water like you do at Hartwell and Murray and all that. But like, you don't see that often. Like, you may go two years without seeing a blueback here and even getting spit really? up. But if you do get around them, now they spit them out and, you, and you're around the fish to win the tournament when you, you know, start seeing floating herring or fish spitting them up, like, you know, that's when you win the tournament, when you get around those fish. But it's not every point, not every pocket. Like, you're allowed to pull up and, you know, they'll be feeding on shad just as heavy as, you know, blueback herring was the, ne- the pocket you just left. 
So it ain't like they're in every spot or every creek or it's it's nothing like that. It's definitely the way to win the tournament if you like I said on Smith. But you know I've won probably just as many tournaments not fishing blueback heron as I on blueback heron. So you only pretty much fish them pretty much fall and just a little bit in the spring. But like even on Smith, just another difference. Like in the Carolinas, they get on those flat you know clay just nothing points. Yeah. They don't do that. Like you don't see a heron. Like they either deep or they're just suspended over. They'll just come over some tree. Okay. Yeah, that was that was one of my like big sort of differentiators. That granted, I don't know either of the fisheries all that well, but in my head, like just the topography of Hartwell is a lot different than Smith. You know, Smith is deeper, steeper. It's a lot more sheer rock, right? Yep. In a lot of places, and then. Hartwell is a lot flatter and I would think it has a lot more like brush piles and cane piles and things like that. That seems like a thing that the locals are just all about there. Whereas you guys catch a ton of fish off docks and, you know, bluffs and things like that, you know? Yeah. And just absolutely nothing just out. Like right now you win tournaments just out in the middle, just live scoping. Like there's no brush piles involved. There's no treetops involved. There's nothing, you know, it's kind of crazy, but, then uh but yeah it's there's a ton more brush piles in Hartwell than there are Smith and it's just because it's so steep it's just so hard to see you know put brush and to sink it in the right places like it's just you know the point comes out and it only comes out so far then it just drops straight off but the points that do have you know a long ways I mean everybody knows where that brush is there's only five or six of them on the whole lake and they get pounded and, you know, I talked to Emil about it, and he comes over, when he comes over here, he's like, dude, he's like, there's like eight places on that lake, and they get on them. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I said, everybody else fishes them. So, like, it's it was easy for him to sit. When he's seen those places, he comes over here and he catches them because they, they're on them. But you have to figure out tricks and stuff, like, to catch them when other people can. I mean, he definitely knows how. But it yeah. uh, <laughs> fish that stuff. Like, like, stuff they're fishing when they came over here, I don't fish any of that because it, it so pounded so but that just goes into you know the local having you know, a, you know places that ain't getting fished by you know 50 boats in one day yeah you got a you got a pretty good backlog of like sneaky places you can slide yeah. into to get a bite yep yeah there's no doubt we just man man jordan recently had that abt 100 and uh you know it's a hundred of the best teams in alabama on here it pays twenty five thousand or thirty something thousand but you know we caught all of our fish but one off place where nobody fishes and that's what our buddies are like, how'd y'all catch them they ain't biting i'm like you gotta have a place <laughs> there's nobody fishing like that's all there is to it like you'll get a few more bites throughout the day and uh and that's what's that's what serves true on those you know when you get a bunch of boats out here on that top water blueback hair type stuff Man, if you don't have secret stuff that ain't getting pounded, if you can let stuff rest, you can win every tournament if you can let stuff rest. And, you know, that's the key to it. And it's the same way at Hartwell. Just have a few more places that, that maybe only another guy fishing or two more guys are fishing. But, like, on Hartwell, I mean, it takes you 10 minutes. And you'll if you just sit out in the middle of the lake and just watch people stop, you could th- you could find 15 brush piles in 30 minutes just watching people run around. And that's kind of what I did in practice. And, you know, looking back, you know, it would have been awesome to have that secret stuff, but it just takes so much time. Like, you'd have to spend three weeks to have enough, you know. It's different. You can find secret stuff, but 
but it being good, like that's the key. Like it's also got to be secret and it's got to be good. There's a lot yeah. of stuff secret, but it ain't any good to, enough to win on. So that's kind of like when I go like talk about pre-practice, it's like it would be going like on our tour now, I go pre-practice just to make sure that I know how to get around the lake or, you know, maybe find one or two places that you can actually get a check or something like that. Like it's hard. It's just hard to win. Like, you know, I mean, it's hard to win tournaments like that for sure, or any tournament really. Yeah. So, how many places were you running in on, on a given day at the All American? Because I remember, like, some of the top guys, it felt like it was like three casts and on to the next. Like they were yep. just going and going and going. Was that you, or were you like hunkered a little more? I was. I was hunkered in an area. So I, like, me knowing how the blueback deal goes if, if stuff is not getting to rest you're not going to pull up and catch one of the big ones like yeah you're going to pull up and catch a two pounder or something like that a, a keeper but to catch those big ones stuff has to rest so how i do it is i try to find an area where i can see all the piles or the points that i want to go hit and i'll stop on one and i'll be watching for my next stop already and i'll i'll try to like plan my next stop or next three stops where there's not a boat. So you just have to, like I've learned that in the past, is just to get in an area where you can, if you can, uh, Hartwell sets up like that because you just yeah, wide and open. Yeah, and you can see all the little fingers that stick out so you know where boats are stopping. And I just try to set my day up where I can see where the next guys are at or the next boat's at so I can just go to the next spot without knowing it got a little bit of rest. Like if I see a boat on something, you know, I'm not going to go straight over there after he leaves. I'm going to make it – I'm going to come back to it, you know, on the backside of the rotation, hopefully that nobody's been on it since. But just pulling up right after somebody leaves, man, I just – I haven't had any luck doing that. So, I was probably running – I probably had 15 maybe places that I felt like I could catch one over four pounds, maybe. Maybe 10 probably. Um, but I had – you know, I had a bunch of places where there was a, some fish and you'd catch okay. some – but as far as good places, I didn't I didn't have that many. And a couple of them, there was one or two that I had to myself, and that's the reason I really got fifth is because I had them to myself. And it was it was like this little single poles that was sticking up off the points, and there'd be like three fish on. Like it was no big school of cane or nothing like that. It would just be be those singles, and I could draw them up with a with a riser. Okay, yeah, that was one of the things. Like it, uh, the riser bait was it was good in that tournament, right? Tyler Trent threw it some. We've seen it play a lot at uh, Hartwell before. I remember Cole Floyd caught a bunch of fish on it in the All-American there a few years ago in the fall, I think. Like, is that a... It seems like such a specific bait, right? Like, I assume it works at Smith, right? Is it just anywhere it's got spots? Is anywhere there's blueback? Like, tell me more about that thing because it's a weird little deal. It's definitely a, a unique bait, and when I first seen it, I'd always it's it's funny about the riser. It, it was before I even was, was with Jackal. Even you know on Smith we have these tiny little little shad they feed on, and it's so hard to match the hatch with those things. And the stuff you can throw that's so small, it's just not heavy enough to get out there, and you know you don't have the right action. Like so, you can't really match the hatch because everything that's so small you can't get to them. You can't you can't throw it far enough. So I've always thought I'm like, man, if we had something that you could that would that would fl- if 
I always said a spoon that would float. That's kind of what I <laughs> something All right. right, but it didn't sink. And then I'd be dang if um I'm like so I knew the the guy at Jackal before I was with him and he was showing me some of the new stuff they were coming out with and I seen that riser and I wasn't even sponsored by him and I was like, Oh my gosh, that's the coolest that's gonna be the best schooling bait I, that's ever been out, I believe. And sure enough it is like i was I, like in my mind i was like dang I, I thought of that lure before it was in but they actually designed something that would work so that bill on it so if you don't know for the people to listen it's just a plastic jerk bait kind of looking bait but the bill sticks straight out and it's metal so when you when you throw it you can throw it a mile it just slices through the wind on a spinning rod i mean you can literally throw it as far as you can throw a topwater bait you know on a bait caster so you bomb it out there and when it lands you just start reeling it and it, it it's like a miniature weight bait. That's the action. If you just reel it across the, the surface and it looks just like one of those minnows that are that V in across the top. So, I mean, it's the perfect profile for, you know, even a blue bag, they got bigger ones that, you know, we got a bigger size that we can use for blue bag, but that Harwell for some reason, man, it's bad. It's the best bite I've ever used with it uh is on that lake and i you know like you said i knew guys had taught them on it so i I was prepared when i got there and uh you know i was giving my co-angler some every day like it it was definitely the best bait and even the color like i got the color dialed in like my co-angler was throwing a bone and uh, of course i got the active target up in the front and i'm shining it and he's reeling his bait and i see like three under his bait and of course i don't tell him i just let him keep reeling it in and he reeled it in, and I just threw mine over there. And he kind of threw it up towards the front. I wouldn't like I threw it in the back. But, and uh, I just, I reeled mine in real quick and threw it over there behind his. And a three of eight mine, because I had the right color. So that's when I realized real quick that even color matters too. So I was using like a real translucent color. I think it was Ghost, Ghost Wagasaki was the color I was using. But, but man, it's a cool bait. And it ain't just on the, the, the herring. Like, I've caught them on it anywhere fish will school at. Like really? eight works. I mean, just a little nugget here that I'm giving away. Like the Mississippi River, I caught them on it at the Mississippi River lacrosse. <clears> and I, I could see that. I'm because they feed on those tiny minnows in that. Yeah, crack. like around the Black River and stuff. Yeah, or Black River, yes. Yeah. I, I murdered them on it. And if I would have had it the first day, if I would, I threw it the second day. If I would have threw it the first day of our uh, Toya, I mean our MLF championship up there, I, I don't think I would have won, but I would have definitely been up there. And, uh, but it was like, oh my gosh, this is, and I just guessed like they were feeding on that tiny shad. So I was like, I bet you they'll bite that riser. So, and, uh, but yeah, it's anywhere they school on little bait or I mean, even big bait, but anywhere they're schooling, it's just so little. You get it to them so quick, you throw it so far. And, uh, it's just a really unique bait. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be, to be able to get plenty of them for sure. Do you, uh, you change any of the hardware on it or anything like that? So the hook that comes on it is the best hook I found for it. Perfect. But you got to take your time. You know, you can't just horse them in like three or four pounders. I mean, that, it'll straighten the hook out, but you can't put a bigger hook on it because it just dulls that that wake the action down so much. So you, the hook that comes on it are good. So usually I'll get three or four, you know, I'll have three or four new ones there. And if I get one I'm catching on, I'll just take the hooks off the new ones, replace the hooks the with the new with the new hooks off of a new bait and that's kind of how i that's the only changing i do to it okay have you ever and you haven't probably ever tried like a feathered treble or anything like that because that would just dull your action down right yeah 
Now, they, they make the – so the one that everybody throws is the 007 size, mm-hmm. and they make a 009 that has a – it has actually has a uh, propeller on it. And that one's just not been as good, like with a propeller. And I believe with a – and like you said, with a feather, it's it's just going to dull it down a little bit. Now, I'm sure if they were schooling and you landed it on them, you know, it's not going to matter. But like at Hartwell, if you're trying to actually – you know, you throw it at Hartwell when they're not schooling. You just throw it over the top like a top water, and they'll come from 10 foot down to up to eat it. Like it was, it was one of the funnest bites I'd ever, you know, been on. Cause it would be a three pound spot one cast, and this cast would be a four pound largemouth. Like it was, it was crazy to see them. And it, in practice, I was throwing, and like I said, I was fishing a lot of stuff that other guys were fishing. So, like I, I knew like the second day of practice, I had the bait that was going to catch the most fish. But then, like I said, you know, having that local stuff, that's how those guys win is having that stuff that. You know, it ain't getting fished by a bunch of boats, and and I and it's not like you definitely catch three and four pounders on it, but like it's like at Hartwell and stuff that that bigger top water and that fluke and stuff is definitely still good too. But if you want to get bit quick and it, and be able to throw, you know, a country mile with a little bitty bait, you know, that riser is it's legit for sure. What uh, you're throwing it on spinning gear? Are you throwing it braid with a leader? Are you throwing like straight braid or straight fluoro or mono or something? Like, yeah, what's the uh, setup there? Yeah, I throw like a, a 15 pound smackdown, which is a tiny, tiny braid. Like, it's really small. It's like eight pound normal, like other people's braid. If you okay. look at so I use that 15 pound smackdown and then I'll use like a four or five foot, eight pound fluorocarbon leader. So I don't use a big long leader. I don't want it. I don't want my leader going through my eyes every cast, like, because you make a ton of casts. So a lot of times I'll, I'll, you know, sometimes it's like three or four foot, but you could probably get away with straight braid. Honestly, I've never tried it, but, um, like if you, you had like, like so do you like cast and flip your bail, like before it hits the water and like immediately like a buzz it's bait, like just, buzz, keep it- just like a buzz okay. bait yeah, I'm already reeling before it hits the water. Um, yeah, especially if they're busting right there, you know, you, you work it just like a, like you would a buzz bait. Like throw it overhanded far as you can, and as soon as it lands, you know you're already reeling. I think I own two, and I think that I've made like three casts with them. And I, I mean, it would be so cool to catch a smallmouth on one, but I don't know if I've actually encountered a situation where I should bother throwing it right. uh, yet. They, but, um, if you like at Mississippi River, that's what I was catching with smallmouth schooling on it. It was God, they come unglued on it. So that, <laughs> no doubt. You know, I wish I would have tried it um, when we was at, at Detroit when they had that Mayfly hatch. They probably oh, yeah. did it. Like, I was catching them on a hair jig right under the surface. So, I, I should have tried it then. With those, but you just don't get it. Like, you, you need it to be calm. You don't want it to be white capping. You need it. A little ripple is okay. You know, a decent ripple, like a five-mile-an-hour ripple. But you don't want it white capping this. You don't want it that because it just won't work right. But and that's the problem you get up there a lot. You just don't get glass calm conditions. And I bet you they'd bite it at Oneida though if they were busting. Guarantee you they would. I've caught them at Oneida on topwater a bunch, and it's always been yeah. it's always been on a popper. And like I almost cast it and pop it, and then like wander around the boat and try to think of things to do, and then pop it again. And like it's just a really slow like. Oh, yeah. wait for them to see it and sw- and so i don't know if the speed would, yeah that's true i think it's a worth i think it's worth trying you know yeah anytime unique. anytime fish are busting 
they it's a good time to throw it. There's no doubt. And I mean, I think that's that's my favorite bait to have tied on if if fish are actively busting. No doubt. Um, why don't they make this thing in chrome? It feels like the Carolinas are all about chrome topwaters. I know. So the color I was throwing it was it it didn't it wasn't named chrome, but it have definitely had chrome sides and like it was. Um, we got more stuff coming though. I don't okay. know if chrome actual chrome is the but i've seen where like they they're making off knockoffs now like homemade ones that are chrome so i like more translucent like i that's what i like the best at at heartwork it was like the more the one i had had like little chrome sides but the the one i caught most of them on were it's like a translucent color like you would throw it out there and you could see the v it was making but you couldn't even see the bait that's how how small and subtle the color was and I think that's why they're biting it so good. Do you just let them load up on it and and sort of pull, or like when you see one blow, do you like actually kind of set the hook? Like, yeah, how do you I just kind of start reeling? You, they'll, like I said, they'll go, they'll hit it so hard and go down. You know, they're down and go lock themselves. Black, so just kind of lean into it with a spinning rod. All right, man, that is uh, that. It's such a cool little bait. Like, I love the little side tangents that you can go on. Um, yeah. Have you ever caught them on the one with the gold front, or always do you throw the silver, the uh, yeah, like metal color? I've always, I've had the most luck with it's been the silver, the 007. Um, and I have a gold one. I caught a few on it at Hartwell in practice. It's like, uh, it was like the 012. It's like a, it's like five inches long. That's like kind of like a secret that nobody's really talking about, but it's a saltwater version of it. And you can put it on a bait caster. It's like three quarters of an ounce. You can throw, you can literally throw all your line off the reel on wow. a bait. So I caught him on that one. It's got a gold body, but it, it was more of a deal like, hey, they're busting, throw something as far as you can over there. Like that's, kind of what it was used for like they probably would have been a hot dog weenie like if you while they're biting like when you get around those blue back if they're busting on the blue back man it don't matter what you throw in there you're fixing they're gonna bite something but when they're not though when they're feeding on that tiny bait that's where that that 007 is the is the key all right um what did you throw any other baits there or like did you rotate stuff at all because if you're pulling up to you know, a brush pile, one of your poles or something like that. Like, are you going through an arsenal or are you like five or six casts with the uh, riser and then on to the next thing? Yeah, I would definitely pull up with, with a top water, um, top water and a fluke. But I caught one the first day on a fluke. I caught a four or something on the fluke the first day. But, man, I and I told a million of them this. They have something figured out with that fluke, like – you don't just throw a fluke out there and just catch him on it. Like it is not <laughs> like they, he's got something figured out. And I mean, hats off. I'll shake his hand and tell him that to his face. Like he's got that crap figured out. And I, like, I don't like, and I tried it. Like I tried burning it. I tried slow. I tried everything and I have to get him to follow it, but I just never could get him to eat it. But I did catch that one big one on it, but I would try the fluke. Cause I know those giants up there bite that fluke. They do. Like I caught them on it at, at Murray this year in our Bass Pro Tour yep. in March or end of March. You know, it was pre-spawn and they were biting it, and I were catching them burning it. But at Hartwood and even on Smith, you know, they catch them on it on Smith, and I just can't. Like I just, 
I've tried everything I know to do to get them to bite it, and I just can't. And so I, I did that in practice so much, never could get them to bite it. And then I tried top water, and and even in the tournament, I would pull up and I would rotate. Like I would even throw, you know, the 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 fluke in the top water first and wouldn't get bit. And then I pick up the jackal and they bite it immediately, like immediately. So I just kind of just stuck with that after the first or second day, and was able just to you know ride it for a good finish. Did you ever try like a drop shot or a Ned, like traditional yeah. slow stuff? Yeah, I caught one or two keepers on a wacky rig sink or a yeah, wacky sink, just a nail weight. Yeah. Uh, just put it out there and let it just sit like on bottom where they're sitting at on the shallower stuff I had. Like I had one little blow through that they were like sitting on the bottom, but it wouldn't be like six foot deep, but they were on the bottom and that's where I caught them on the on the nail weight. But I tried that in the trees and stuff and you know, I'd catch a couple small ones that would follow it down, and but the big ones, I just couldn't get them to buy nothing on bottom. And there were some guys throwing, like, micro jigs and stuff like that around them, and, and they caught a few. I remember hearing talking to a guy. Um, he made the top ten doing that. But I just – man, those big ones bite that top water. That's just – there's just no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you – you were talking depth there a bit, and you had a couple shallow areas. For your, like – regular brush run did you have a specific like were you trying to look for brush that's in 15 and topped out to you know eight feet under or something or was it just wherever yeah. you happened to find it yeah it didn't matter um how deep it was like it could be a tree that come up 50 foot and, and as long as it was like 10 foot under the surface you was good so it was the same with the brush so like the blow through it was a like it was deep and it just come up. It was like a saddle pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, but it topped out in like six or eight feet and all the brush I had was like six or eight feet under the surface. So that was always the key depth for me from, you know, four foot under the surface all the way down to about 10 or 12 and you could call them up. But like, it didn't matter if it was 50 foot and it, like I said, a tree came up or if it was 12 foot and it, the brush only came up five feet. Like it just, it didn't really matter as long as, you know, the surface was about five or six feet above the, the brush or the cane or whatever it was, you know, they was fishing. Nice. Well, I feel like I've pretty much uh, bugged you about everything I wanted to bug you about the tournament. Is there anything that, you know, maybe I should ask, right? That's like something else interesting you turned up that I totally missed on or something like that. Or is that pretty much the story? No, that's about it. Really? Just, I just want to give my hats off to Emil and that other uh, Matt. They just dominated and they, they throttled I, them. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I found them. I watched them like they were fishing some of the same stuff I was fishing. And like I said, they got that secret little tricks. Like they'd get a few more bigger bites. Like that's how they got those bigger bites. And like I didn't even have big bites like jumping over mine or nothing like that. So it wasn't like I was getting them to bite, but they were. Now, they definitely had – I've watched them. They had secret stuff, but it wasn't – like, they were fishing some normal stuff, too, and catching them. So, it was it was pretty cool to see. And, you know, like, I kind of felt like I, – I felt what I get to dish out here, like I got it done to me <laughs> up there. So, hats off to those guys. Like, and I told them in the weigh-in line how, how impressive it is. I don't think they realize how impressive it is to watch them, you know, to, to dominate like that with all those boats out there and – I mean, Emil would take off running, and there would be 50 locals behind him, and he would still pull up and catch, like, I don't know. I don't, at Smith, I don't think it would work like that with all those boats out there, but it was it was definitely impressive, so hats off to them. Dude, I didn't realize. I, I said so again. 
I didn't so, realize there were that many locals out there following. I wasn't at this tournament. The, oh, so, yeah. He dude, had a – I don't know if they were 50 fault. I bet you between him and Matt, there was 50 boats, honestly. I know they'd be 15 at one time. Like, he'd come buzzing by, and they would – you'd see them coming. You know, you can see forever on that lake. Yeah, yeah. And you'd just see them coming. You're like, you better hurry up and get hit two or three places or get a spot before all them waves come. But it was it was pretty neat to watch and how wow. impressive it so. Uh did you you remember the uh the Forestwood Cup at Murray that um uh the Atkins won? Yes. Dude, yes. so that tournament, I think it was day two and then day three, Brandon Cobb had like just a flotilla behind him. Really? Like that. It was probably yeah. it probably was like fifty plus boats. Yeah. I guess the Carolinas will really do some following. Hey, they um, love. Like, which I told Emil, I'm like, dude, you gave away every single secret spot you got. But I said, you won, you know, 100,000 or whatever it was. I said, you're going to give it away. That's the time to do it. (laughs) Like, there's places down here. We, me and Jordan, do not fish them unless it's 25 to 50,000, you know, over 50,000. Like, that's what I tell him. I was like, it's either a boat, like, you either win a boat or you're not fishing that spot. Like, it ain't worth it to go win $200, you know, and somebody see it. You know what I mean? So, that's what I told. That's what I told a meal in the line. I was like, "Dude, you gave away everything you got." But I said, "It's totally worth it." I said, "They're not gonna catch him like you catch him." I promise you. Like you ain't gotta worry about it because uh, he's got something figured out, no doubt in my mind. So, nice. dude, I'm I'm supposed to talk to a meal this afternoon. I'm so yeah. glad we talked now. I'm gonna be like, yes. "All right." Yeah. So Jesse says you got all this. It's gonna be great. I'm, yeah, tell I'm him like, tell him to give out some secrets. I've been begging for some on those on that foot deal. <laughs> He's um, not going to say, oh, I'll trigger it on 10 pounds. I know he's always going to say, I can already tell you, and you can tell him I said this. He's going to rig it on a 10-pound braid with a, a leader and a spinning rod. And, I mean, he's going to say all the normal stuff. But he's got something he does to make him buy it. There's no doubt. Like, he don't, you don't just throw it out there and reel it in, like he says. But, <laughs> you don't just throw it out and reel it in. Hey, I might just be overthinking it, but I feel like I've made enough cast with it where I would have got a few more bites if it was that good. But it he's a good guy though, dude. I like him a lot. He's a he's a stud of an, an angler. So but yeah, yeah, tell him I was giving him crap about giving his secrets out with a flute. Um, I, I will. Emil actually so he had more top tens in MLF competition in twenty twenty three than anyone else did. Yeah, I believe like, it. He was literally, I mean, obviously he's not fishing at the Bass Pro Tour level, right? He wasn't fishing the Invitational's level, but right. he was pretty much the best. He was the hottest thing going. Um, and that, he told me that was his first year of fishing multiple day events too. Like he said, he learned a ton. So, dude, he's gonna be he's gonna be dangerous in the open for sure. Like, yeah. I would be shocked if he don't qualify the first year. You know, having nine tournaments, different lakes. Like he traveled up north, fished Toyotas up there. Like he's he's ready, I believe. He seems, yeah, so, he he seems I, ready to go for sure. Yeah, so it's um, it's it's cool to see, and and he's a you know he's a like down here we had that regional. The reason I made the All American was because of the regional here on Smith, yeah, which you won, and Emil finished second in <laughs> two ounces. I had more weight than I I thought I would have won by seven or eight pounds, and I mean I didn't whack them by any means, but I like had. 14, 15, and 13, or, you know, about that average. Yep. And you 12 a day just blows it out in October. And it, it would have been. I mean, but he was, I mean, like I said, won by two ounces. So fortunate to beat him. 
But like I, t- I knew right then. I'm like, dude, this guy's got something figured out. Whether he's, whether he's, you know, schooling top water fish, no doubt. So it was pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Well, uh, Jesse, I tell you what. Thanks so much for the time, and uh, best of luck this year. You got a big year ahead of you. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Obviously, you can see why that was one of my favorite interviews that we've done in a while. Uh, Jesse is fascinating. We dove deep on a few things. Uh, one of the most interesting things was how much he pays attention to the competition on a fishery like this. Whether it's to actually find spots, whether it's to gauge when he needs to be going to a brush pile or a cane pile versus not. I thought it was fascinating, sort of the level of strategic thinking he's putting into it, and then just uh, sort of the, uh, you know, the savviness. This is a guy who's a veteran, right? We also talked about um, the uh, differences between Smith Lake, between Hartwell, that sort of thing. I thought that was really cool. And then we really dove into the Jackal Riser bait, which is a unique bait. It's a super cool top water and I was glad to kind of dig into that because it's a bait that I've had for a while I've made a few casts with but haven't really got to apply and maybe won't ever <laughs> uh, but it's still something that was really cool uh, but anyhow next man up here is Anthony Johnson and uh, then we're done so thanks for listening alrighty our next man up here is Anthony Johnson and Anthony you uh, made the top 10, finished fourth, and you weren't like quite in the picture to win when you consider how well Emil and some of those high flyers did, but you also had a fantastic tournament. So, dude, congrats on it. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it, was, uh, it was a pretty wicked tournament, especially after my day one start. Um, caught some of the fish that I knew I could catch and then kind of backed off a little bit the second and third day, which I'm sure we can jump into, but... Yeah, it was a it was an unreal experience. I mean, that tournament's something pretty special, and it was uh, great to be able to have such a good finish in that. For sure. Um, I guess one thing that really just struck me out of the gate is that you figured out how to catch them so well, and you weren't from there. And you know, running brush and running objects and things like that—it's not something that you don't do in other parts of the country right and chris macy won out there and you know you've got a i'm sure you have experience doing that around the house at the same time i don't know if there's herring in missouri and like you had to go learn a new thing so just what was that like yeah i mean it was a little bit overwhelming at first i mean i did a lot i mean i mean the the cool thing about growing up now it's like we've got the i mean i i've kind of went through both the uh bunch of different stages where there wasn't a lot of information and you just had to really dig in and figure it out Mm -hmm. reading stuff out of magazines things like that now we've got like all the youtube videos live fishing you know there's just a wealth of information out there and once i you know knew i was going to make it i started putting some time in just kind of trying to figure out what i thought i needed to do reaching out just talking to some people and stuff you know maybe some folks that have been there before um just trying to learn everything that I could. And then I made the decision to really just get there early. My, my wife and uh, family are really awesome. And, and they gave me the opportunity to kind of get down there uh, a little bit early before the off limits period. And uh, I was able to go out and just find, 
basically everything I needed to find and, um, you know, kind of go from there. So the herring was a different deal. I mean, I think, I, I don't know, we, I, we weren't really fishing the herring spawn, right? Cause I think yeah. that had happened. Uh, that might've made it a little bit more interesting. If, if that would have been going on, that might, it might've made it a little bit tougher, but I think we were there just after that had kind of starting to wrap up and, um, and so that kind of positioned some of those fish on, you know, some of those different uh, pieces of cover and stuff. Yeah. What did you end up targeting in the tournament? Like, did you have, oh, it was specifically a brush pile. Oh, it was specifically cane. Was it just anything in the water that stuck up? Like, what was, did you have a method to your madness? I think I, I think I ended up saying this, but in uh like the post interview but I, I basically found anything that looked like it would hold fish and i would mark it and then i was catching fish on all of it during the uh you know before the off limits period and then when i came back so we it's really kind of cool so we uh i went down and it's a pretty far drive it's i don't know 13 15 hour drive something like that down there for for me and i went down early and then we went to uh, the beach during the off limits period. And I could, I like, couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to get back, you know, because I mean, I like found all this stuff. I was catching tons of fish, good fish, you know. And then uh, when I got back, I just basically took everything that I had found and I went and figured out where the fish, like if there was anything specific that they were using or not using. And I started really kind of dialing in which ones I was going to visit. Didn't mean that I wouldn't go to something that, you know, I didn't think had fish on it or whatever, but I, I knew exactly where the fish were and I would just run every bit of that. Hmm. How many places do you think you were hitting in a day? Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know. I mean, it was, it was a lot like, I mean, it seems like it had to be like a hundred. I don't even know. Maybe more than that. I mean, I was, it was, I was all over the place. I, one thing I've kind of come to is it seems like this tournament, or like this style of tournament was like some of the most like physically demanding tournament fishing that you could have. Like, have you been more tired after a fishing, after fishing a tournament than this one? Uh, no, I, I don't even remember, but I, I wear a, I, I wear an Apple watch. I'm not like big into like all the health stats off of it and mm -hmm. stuff, but I thought if I would go back and look, then it was like, I'd be like posting like record days and I'm like, I'm in a boat. I'm not even moving around. Like, I don't <laughs> think it tracks you while you're driving, but like yeah. literally running back and forth from the front deck to the back deck. I wore out a trolling motor cable. Uh, oh, like your pull cord? Yeah, in a two-week period. <sighs> not, like, it was, I mean, my trolling motor is not the same after that tournament, honestly. It's like all loose. and then, Like I said, I had to replace the cable within a two-week period. Garmin, unfortunately, is kind of like known for that a little bit with their cable. Like, if you use it a lot, it, it just wears them out. But. Yeah, I have uh, I have an Ultrax, and I try to remember to like redo my cable like once a year because yeah. I know otherwise I'm gonna pull it and break it. And I still at it feels like like at least every other year I forget to do that, and I pull it and I almost go in the lake. I almost pull it yeah. sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you, I I normally travel with an extra cable just for that reason because it's like it's an easy light thing to carry and you know you can if you keep it in the boat if something does happen most of the time they give you enough of a warning but um like they'll be like all frayed out and yeah whatever, you can but, see it 
but yeah, I try to get in a good habit of, you know, you step on it first and then, uh, and then pull and then it comes up a lot easier, but yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of stuff. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, just how, how different you have to fish. And then once, you know, once you'd hit something, a lot of times, um, you know, it's only good for a few casts. I mean, it's, I don't know. I talked to Emil and a couple of the guys and they were pretty cool. I mean, honestly, they were, they were talking to me a little bit and, and uh, we, we were running a lot of the same type of stuff and yeah. running in the same areas and, and things. And, and it was like, I don't know, just, I think they had something else going on a little bit here and there where there was another little bit of a, a pattern and stuff going on. I'm not, you know, I don't really want to say a whole lot about it, but, uh, but I think they had another little thing that they could go to that was just not just piles. And I think that really helped where they were able to catch a few more fish here and there, but, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty crazy. It was fun fishing. That was that, unreal. I mean, I'm, I'm like dialed in to like go back there just for fun, like that time of year, because it was it was pretty fun fishing. Yeah, it does seem like the kind of thing that could be. I mean, it was fun then, and it probably is like an interesting pace, like to to fish a tournament at that high speed. But you know, it could be really fun if you had time to like sit down and take a break for ten minutes if you wanted to, and yeah. then get back up and go and run hard or even just run it at 90% instead of 110%. Like you could have a blast of a day of fishing. Yeah. Like when I was practicing, um, it was a blast. Uh, day one was pretty fun. Day two, a little stressful. Day three, not as bad. Uh, day two was like crazy because, um, I don't know how much, you know, you want to go into some of this stuff or not, but like, Oh, I want to go in cause you crushed them on day one. And like yeah. day two and day three tailed off some. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I caught them still good. I mean, if you look at the weights in general for everybody, right. They just weren't that great except for those top three. I mean, I, I was there a little bit, but like you said, it was, I, I kind of, after my day one, I kind of pulled back a little bit. They, they were still there. Um, I, I had them. I mean, I had some come up. I had a couple of them on for a couple of cranks and they just got off, which, you know, I didn't have that really that experience. Um, you know, like a four pounder would come up like right at the boat and just nip it and you'd have them for just a second and you pull and it's like, it just, you know, it's a skin oh, hook. Just, yeah. Magic, you know, but, and on that, like a four pounders, you know, pretty big one. My, my uh, co-angler on day one caught like, I don't even remember what that fish was. It was, um, he ended up winning the tournament, but he had big bass for the day. It was pretty crazy. I mean, it was a giant. Um, but yeah, no, what happened? So the deal was, is we, we got set up on that tournament and it was, it was going to be cloudy and kind of windier out. Right. And, and my experience was that that was the best conditions to catch them in. And I could catch them in the sun too. I did, the sun didn't bother me but I needed the wind mm -hmm. and during the pre-practice and even, you know, like prior to being there before the off limits started, there was like literally one day that I got that was sunny and calm. Like and that was the worst thing for me because I didn't get to learn how to catch them on those days. And I think the guys that the locals, they know the little adjustments that they need to make um, to still catch them. 
and one of them was probably having that spinning reel out a little bit. But uh, <laughs> but I didn't. I'm out there like catching them on twenty pound test line and stuff. You know, just big big stuff. But uh, but anyway, like uh, we so day t- it was supposed to be. Um, I think the only day we did, that I hadn't practiced, like pre-practice, was I think it was Labor Day. And it's like, you know, a bunch of boat traffic. It's kind of calm and slick and sunny, hot. And it was just like, we weren't really into fishing that much that day. And I really should have buckled down and tried to figure out what I needed to do to catch them. And it was that was the toughest day I ever had on that lake. So we get the, the, the forecast and it's like cloudy and a little bit of wind every day, all three days. And I'm like, I am going to freaking wreck them. You know, like I just, I knew it. I was just, I was that confident in what I had. I had enough of it and I knew I could move around and I would figure out where they were biting. And day one, I go out there and, and I mean, had a, a fantastic day. I probably could have, I mean, I had 18 some, I could have had a 20 some pound bag, no problem. I mean, my, uh, my co-angler, he did absolutely nothing wrong, but I, I had this one area on day one where I was fishing and it was kind of wide. Um, everything else was very target oriented. I'd pull up, I'd be facing straight at it, throw at it, and a co-angler's not going to be throwing at it. This particular area, I wasn't paying attention because I was, I mean, I was, you know, just kind of in the moment a little bit. And he, uh, he was over kind of casting towards the shore a little bit and stuff. And I'm pulling up, I'm fishing, I'm looking at some fish over to my left a little bit but this is like i said it was kind of a wide area and like 70 80 yards and after a while of me jacking with these fish on the left he i think he just kind of started you know just kind of moving up a little bit but he wasn't doing anything wrong you know for most of the spots i was fishing but this one particular one he like throws up there i didn't even pay attention to it at first and he's like i think i got one he goes, ah, no, that's just a hybrid. And it comes up and I'm like, dude, that is a freaking giant largemouth. And it starts jumping. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, like, we're like, we got to get this thing in the boat. He gets up to the boat and he's got a, it's a fairly like, I would say like a medium weight rod. I mean, this, this, this fish is just beating on him. I mean, it's just like surging down. It like makes a run. It goes underneath the boat ends up jumping on the other side. I got like, we're like, I'm there with the net on the one side and it ends up jumping behind us. And uh, he's like, dude, what do we do? And I'm like, just, just keep some tension on. I end up taking the trolling motor, kind of getting back on the other side of the fish. Uh, we end up landing a couple minutes later. I don't, like I said, I don't remember, you probably looked it up pretty easily, but it was like five, six pounds or something like that. I don't even know. Mine barely oh, smokes. It was a freaking giant. Um, but I mean, and and that he was actually throwing the exact. I gave him the same thing I was throwing, and and uh, he caught that. It was really cool. I don't think it would have changed. The cool part about it is it wouldn't have changed one thing in the entire tournament for me. I might mean, have changed my mental attitude a little bit. I'd have been super stoked after day one, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a giant. Um, but yeah, day two, the uh, it it the sun kind of came out, which it wasn't supposed to do, and then we kind of lost some wind. And what I didn't realize, I was kind of fishing uh, in a par- part of the lake. It was a huge part of the lake. And I, I actually figured, I, like, this is the one thing that I really screwed up on. I'm out there fishing. I'm in grinding. I literally have, like, two fish. And it's, like, uh, I'm going to say 1230. And they're not good ones. Okay. And I'm sitting here going, am I really going to blow this? Like, I, I mean, I'm, like, so confident. I'm like, what is going on? And, I am, and I'm in a great area. I've had a lot of confidence in this area. And I just keep hitting stuff. And I'm like, it is not working. And finally, at, like, 1230, I was like, I have got to go. 
right? I've got to go to a different area just to see. And I mean, it's still an area I practiced in. It's still an area I knew really, really well. And it was just like, I remember looking out across the lake and I thought I'm like, the wind's gone. And it was just kind of that like rolling wave, you know, like it had a, it didn't really have a ripple. It just kind of had that rolling, yep. a little bit of wind. I don't know how to other describe it. And I take off, I run about five, six miles and I kind of just make this little bend and all of a sudden I'm like, there's the ripple that I need. And I pull into the Creek, pull up first one, make a cast, hook one up, lose it. And I'm like, no way. I'm like, all right, well, that's cool. Get the next one, pull up, hit it, get another one on, get it like literally like with it's within the net, but we didn't, he didn't reach for it and it comes off. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I was like, this is what it's going to go down. I was like, I looked at him. I said, look, at least they're biting. Cause like, if they're going to bite, we can catch them, you know, like, and so I hit the next five, six piles, end up catching one off of every single one of them, get to like almost, I don't remember what it was that day. I think I had almost 13 pounds on day two. And like, I'm like, I was so relieved, like driving back, you know, cause I knew 13 would get me in no problem and yeah. uh, still put me in decent spot. And, uh, but yeah, that wind was the deal. I mean, it was so huge. Um, you almost, you almost should have chased that wind earlier. Right. Yeah. That's the, like, that's the mistake right there, I guess. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, you couldn't, couldn't think about it any other way. Um, I just, I was, what I didn't understand and I just thought the wind was gone because I mean, I'm in this massive area. I mean, it's huge and I'm not out like hiding in the back of a Creek or a pocket or something. Yeah. I'm pretty main lakeish and that stuff. And it's still just like that rolling, you know, waves. Dang, like it was just, it was really hard. But after the fact, I was like, that's where I messed up. Like that was, that was the critical mistake. Cause if I would have ran that other stuff for, you know, up the lake just a little bit or wherever it was, you know, like wherever I was, uh, wherever I went to, it would have, it would have made all the difference on day two for me. Um, and then I, I think day three was almost similar. Um, but it was, I don't, I, I'm, I'm trying, I'm even struggling what, what the deal was on day three a little bit. I mean, I, I think I caught them good. I just don't think I caught any good ones. I think they just wouldn't, the big ones wouldn't bite that day. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was one of the days where I had some really nice ones like at the boat and then they just, they just would not, would not eat it, you know? So yeah. well, dude, day three was the toughest day for sure. Yeah. Cause if yeah. O'Connell and Emil, they caught him. And yeah. then Buddy had 12 and change. And yeah. there was only like, like, it was really, really hard to catch even 13 pounds on I think, day three. I think you're, yeah, I think that's, that sounds right. And, and I remember it was tough on almost everybody except those two. And I, I think, so, so the first thing was wind. And then the second thing was my setup. Like I said, I was throwing a bait caster and like 20 pound line. Mm -hmm. And and part of it, the reason why I was doing that is because I was catching them with that, and uh, I was kind of joking around like with the the guys when we were doing the interview, and they're like, "Yeah, what are you thinking about the day?" I was like, "Man, if we can go out there and catch us a bunch of those those hybrids or whatever they are, you know, we're gonna have a fun day." Because I was I was there there a lot of times the bass were mixed in with them, and okay. if you're sitting there catching a bunch of hybrids on on spinning gear, it's like you're out you know, I felt like I was wasting a lot of time. And so I was getting a lot of bites, 
with that bigger gear and I could I could tell pretty quick most of the time when it was a hybrid or whatever and I'd just horse it in and like boat flip it throw it in you know there's no net needed anything and you just cast out and do another one because a lot of times once you caught one of them if you could get right back out there quickly you might have a shot at getting something else hooked up that that you know was a bass and and a lot of times it was a good one so I was really focused on that where I think I think I know specifically like a mill was I mean you can see it in all the pictures and stuff he's throwing spinning gear he's throwing lighter line I mean just you know got a little little bit more finessey setup and I think that may have been may have been the, the little bit of the trick that in the wind so yeah so how did you end up uh catching them uh bait wise and like was it stuff that you're all used to back home or was it stuff that you bought and honed in and learned and practice and you know specifically for this i would say it was more the hartwell stuff i mean you know that magic swimmer will catch them it's kind of crazy but like um i tried glides and different things like that and big uh big swim baits you know stuff that we might try throw back home in a mm -hmm. different lake and i couldn't really catch them on that as well um you know, I think everybody down there was throwing a fluke. I mean, that thing obviously works there. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was crazy because I kind of went in and as I always do, I'm like, I'm going to try something just a little bit different than maybe what everybody's going to do. And um, I just figured out that like the stuff that most of the guys were throwing, you know, the, the traditional Hartwell stuff seemed like that was the best stuff. And I just, it was more about having enough stuff to go to having the confidence in it and not spending too much time just milking something you know like i think like like we were talking about early on just knowing that this thing is going to be a sprint not like a marathon you know it was like you just had to be ready to rock and roll every time you know you took the boat off pad or as you're going out i mean it was just like how much stuff can i hit in one day and i i'm going to go through enough fish and find the right ones eventually that i'll have a good bag yeah it was i was i'm telling you that was like probably the most fun like lake and i mean i've caught bigger better bags at times or you know seem like but i just that that lake is unreal like how many how many fish you can run across and and catch and, and whatever maybe it was just the time we were there but you i hear a lot of stories from folks that it's like it's that way you know all the time like for at least that time of year and stuff yeah it sounds like even when it's bad that lake puts out a lot of fish um yeah and you know big numbers uh stuff like that whereas like i mean i guess well you're from the ozark division so like lake of the ozarks sometimes it can be awesome but it's not always awesome like it can be a really challenging fishery it can Absolutely. be a low numbers place i mean there's days where you go out there and you're like man if i can get five six bites and they're the right ones that, i mean you can do well in a tournament but like sometimes trying to get all five or six bites it's it's tough yeah it's whereas like there it wasn't it wasn't that hard to go out and get what the hard part was finding some of those areas and knowing a little bit of like not getting too caught up like i don't know you pull up on some of them and you could just tell it was just littered with spots Mm -hmm. and you weren't always going to catch a good one when that was going on. I mean, I'm not saying you couldn't, and there were some good spots in there too, but you kind of had to not just get excited if you saw fish. You had to be a little bit more, you know, like selective at what you were throwing at, I feel like. At least if you wanted to try to 
find that better bag, I think. Uh, yeah. One one thing I figured I should ask was, what was it like fishing a tournament of this caliber sort of from the front of the boat? Because, like, looking at your stats, you've been doing the co-angler thing a lot, right? Like, this is this was a big tournament. It was kind of a fairly new experience, I'm guessing, for you, especially to travel, right? Like, was that – did it take some getting used to? Were you nervous? Or am I totally wrong in asking a stupid question because, like, <laughs> You fished no. the opens for like 12 years as a boater, and I totally missed it. <laughs> no, you got it right. Uh, I actually just got into uh, like tournament fishing. I've fished my entire life. I mean, I, I got to thank my parents and stuff because they, uh, like, literally, I grew up in a boat, and we would go to the lake. They've got a they've got a place up the Ozarks, um, up like real high up towards Warsaw, and we grew up, you know, fishing. I didn't bass fish as much. It's kind of hard to do that with like four people in the boats like my dad's buddy and then me and my brother and you know whoever you know maybe even five or so so we crappie fished a lot catfish different things like that but i grew up on the water bass fished a lot in general kind of on my own but then uh i got i got kind of started with a buddy from around here who had fished a few tournaments and i kind of started doing some of the travel thing going there with him and i actually got um i just kind of happened to run into it was really weird how it all went down but i uh i know you had like brad on um actually i think his podcast or whatever aired not that long ago jelenic and yep. like i run travel with all those guys basically so um you know they're fishing the invitational stuff i i uh fish with brad prepping for toyotas and that type of stuff so I, I spend a lot of time out in the boat and that type of thing um i did start fishing the bfls uh this year as a boater i mean i've always i probably could have done it but I, I don't know. I enjoy just going out and, and learning and seeing what other people are doing. It, it does force me to fish a little bit different way. I can be a little bit stubborn at times. Like I, I like to do it kind of my way. And if it's not working, I'll just sit there and grind on it. But um, nonetheless, I mean, so I travel with those guys. So that helps a lot. Right. So I kind of get used to what it takes to how do you prep for tournaments? You know, what are they like? All that type of thing. So so that's that was probably that did help me a little bit jumping into the front of the boat. I mean, it was kind of crazy how I even got there. I, I ended up fishing the wild card because I, so they got a really weird rule, right? Where you can swap. <laughs> yeah. If you go to the wild card, you can fish it however you want. You don't have to, if you were a co-angler all year, you don't have to stay a co-angler. And, and I think, I don't know how that all works, whatever, but um, I, I didn't make, I made the wild card because of a motor issue at Table Rock. And we didn't make it in. So I didn't make the regional that year. And I was all bummed out, you know, because my buddies were all going to the regional and I'm not, I didn't make it, you know, didn't qualify. And we happened to be down at the Toyota series. And I look at the calendar and I'm like, ahead of time, right? I'm, I'm like, the dang regional is right after that on Wheeler. And I did the exact same thing at Wheeler. I was like, we're going to be down at the Toyota. I'm, I'm going, leaving immediately from the Toyota. I put it on, I mean, I, I had my boat put the boat in and most guys didn't even go out and fish uh the first day of practice at wheeler it was so i mean it's almost the roughest like that one and maybe you follow uh that i've ever been on in my life go out there and on i think it was the second day i found the right fish and day one i get a boater on boater draw so i, I ended up i decided to fish it as a boater i was like well, i'm gonna put the time in and whatever let's just yeah. see what happens 
and I get a boat on boat or draw. We end up flipping a coin. We end up in another guy's boat, which was fine. The fish this stuff, I actually catch them pretty good in the morning. And I've got like 12 some pounds or whatever, which is, you know, on that lake is not bad at that time of year. And he's got maybe 10 or something. And he's like, well, we can go out to your stuff. And anyway, long story short, didn't work out. The, the mapping and the live scope was not set up enough for me uh, the way mine was. or didn't, I just couldn't do what I needed to do. Um, Dude, it's hard. It's hard to like swap boats and yeah. even just swap like trolling motors. Like, I have fished uh, with a buddy of mine, and he'll he knows this, <laughs> and he's got like the thirty-two scope transducer and a ghost, and I'm used to an Ultrex and a thirty-four, yeah. and I'm like, what am I doing? I feel like I went back in time. It's hard to like adjust on the fly like that. It is like, yeah, like to me, you know, like some of them jump a little bit, like you go to Lawrence and it's got an arrow versus the head turning, you know, and I'm used to, I can mm -hmm. see the head turning out of the corner of my eye. I don't always have to, I can be looking at it and not even having to, you know, but the arrow, it's like, I have to pay attention to it. You know, I was fishing with my buddy the other day and he's got a Lawrence and it's the same way. Like when I'm on the trolling motor and that thing, it's like, it's always a little tough for me, but, but yeah. So we go out there, I, the scope basically wasn't even working. And I didn't oh, have any, not ideal. I had no contours and I, we fished around for a little bit and I told the dude, I was like, we got to go back. I was like, we're, we're wasting our time out here. So we go back, um, catch a few more, whatever, and come in and like, I don't remember what place I was in after day one, but I was, I was up in like 10th or 11th. I'm like, all right, I'm still in it. So the next day, start looking at the forecast and it's going to go like 20, 25, which, you know, like on that lake is pretty, pretty bad. And all of my stuff was out in the middle of the lake. And anyway, we, I, I, I kind of went into a few creeks where I'd found some stuff going on and got, I had like three fish at like 12, 1230. And I looked at my calling and I was like, man, I hate to do this to you, but we are going to take a very, very rough boat ride and it's going to be wet while we're out there. Like, it's, I mean, I'm telling you, we're going to be taking them over the front or the back if I'm turning, you know, like, it's just not going to be good. But I was like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll keep us in good shape, but, it's going to suck. And um, so we go out there and I make like three casts and catch like a three and a half pound smallmouth. And I'm like, they're here. And I'm like, I'm like, I'd ca I caught like 20 some pounds there. In not even intentionally. Like, I mean, I was just like kind of wandering around this area in practice. And I'm like, it had big, large mouth and big, big um, small mouth in it. And um, anyway, it's craziest thing ever. But I uh, catch one, and then they kind of – I could see them a little bit here and there, but then and they kind of cooled off. I'm like, gosh, dang it. You know, so I slid over to this other little area again uh, where I had caught some, couldn't get a bite. I'm like, gosh, dang it. And I had not seen one person on this thing the entire time. And um, somehow or another, this – I don't even know there was no even boats out there but this one boat kind of like shows up and he's like it's almost like he's just blowing down through there or something mm -hmm. kind of hanging around so he's not really fishing it but he's in the way type deal and we're like i'm kind of like trying to work up that direction just hoping he's going to leave because i want to hit this one more time and then i was going to just get out of there if we didn't catch anything and uh i'm getting kind of closer to him like we're just kind of working towards each other a little bit and he's uh I said, hey, man, you know, it's kind of tight and there's a bunch of stumps and stuff. And he's like, 
uh, I was like, you know, do you want me to go around you which way, whatever? And he's like, because I was just going to work my way out of there and get out of the out of the spot in general and let him just have whatever because I was, felt like I was just wasting time. And um, he's like, no, man, I'm leaving. You can go wherever you want. And I'm like, all right. I was like, I'm going to go cast on, you know, I just kind of like made a little bitty turn in and started, you know, going because he picked up his trolling motor, literally threw up there again and caught like another three and a half. And I'm like, thank you. You know, like I got my fifth fish at that point. I put together a decent bag and I knew I had a shot. And I'm like, if I can catch one more of these things, I told my coin guard, I was like, I'm not leaving this spot the rest of the day. And I mean, again, we're boats wet. We're taking on water. And uh, he, uh, he's kind of casting around too. In, he ends up catching two, like four, four and a half pounders, like one of those oh, small mouth. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I'd have caught those. I would have probably won the dang, uh, dang tournament. But I was on some big fish. It was really cool. But and again, just another one of those deals where I found the right stuff and just just fished it hard the whole time. But anyway, it would have been cool if I could have fished that thing the whole tournament and seen what it, what would have really happened. But it's just how it worked out. Yeah, that's cool though. I mean, you literally you you switched sides essentially, and then you ended up. I mean, you may you finished sixth, right? So like that's the last spot in. Like yeah. you had a. That's a very that's a very cool way to make it. Yeah, it was crazy. The way, I mean, all the events and how. I mean, I think I was maybe like one ounce in front of the guy, you know, behind me. So I make it and he doesn't, you know, and then and then get, make it to the wild or to the all American and end up, you know finishing fourth which was again just unreal pretty amazing that is that is really cool um well uh anthony man thanks for the time i uh i, I really appreciate it uh if you've got any socials or anything like that that you want people to follow i'm all ears it's uh now's your time yeah no i just got to thank you know all my family and, and that stuff for supporting me and then you know all my friends i mean they uh, they've been amazing just you know just helping out and you know, we spend a lot of time on the boats and traveling and all that different stuff together. Um, I will, I will say, you know, uh, Bob at, at Powerhouse and FX Custom Rods, the Powerhouse side. I switched my entire rig out before the uh, during during the All American, like before practice and all that, because okay. I could not make it on my. I run eighty six sixteens on my boat, and I wasn't able to get through the day, and I had to have those electronics. I switched out an entire uh, powerhouse setup on my boat, and I mean they're they're just badass. I mean I, I can't say enough about them. Controlling motor, graphs, all that, and then uh, I actually got a bunch of brand new rods and set those up because I like the. Um, I, I run FX anyway, but I like four or five brand new rods because I'm like I don't want to have to retie anything and uh bob took really good care of me while i was down there so that was really awesome of them and uh yeah other than that that's that's all i got man i'm just uh thankful for the opportunity so cool well uh thanks for uh coming on i appreciate the time man and um hang on the line real quick while this uploads but uh thanks a bunch and great job yeah thanks Billy. appreciate it